Um, but Bill drove a Ford, Chase drives a Chevrolet. There's brand loyalty and all these other sorts of innuendos that go into that. But um, I mean, I'm a big fan of the history of NASCAR. So when the 43 car is leading with a few laps to go, I am pulling as hard for him as I did anybody all year at holding on in Darlington because there's something about, I don't know, Rev, I still have a nostalgic streak about me and, uh, you know, the 43 leading in Darlington for the first time or winning in Darlington the first time in 55 years. Um, wow, that's a pretty cool um, storyline. So, yeah, to me, that's the takeaway. 43 wins is the story of the race. Um, the 9 and 18 have trouble, and the others are just kind of fighting for their lives. Um, we'll see how it goes. We'll go from 16 to 12 after two more races, and then to go from 12 to 8, 8 to 4. Um, it's a little bit like March Madness. I mean, it's not March, but it's a little bit like, you know, you, you got to figure out a way to advance. You got to figure out a way to advance, and that's kind of the way these – um, it's probably more like eh, – it would be more like the college baseball playoffs because you got a three-game set. And they got to win that three-game set. You got to beat the, these other 15 drivers to make sure you move on to the next round and then the next round. Um, <laughs> but but it's kind of interesting that the nine did all that quality work during the regular season, and you just give it all away. And now he's um he's fighting for his playoff life. Um, college football. Let's move to there. College but football. Before we move, let's just give Kerry Tharp and the staff at Darlington Raceway a big congratulations and great job. I mean, but we got to be negative. I mean, I got to be negative. They said it sold out, but a lot of the bleachers had tarps over. I mean, the, the, you know, the backstretch. Yeah, the backstretch. I mean, signage. Yeah, well, that did. means the tickets weren't for sale then. Well, if I mean, they if, had the signage well, on I mean, there. Why so. would you take? I, I would imagine if I'm running a racetrack, I'd rather have butts in those seats than I have, you know, awnings or or, or um, what am I trying to say here? Signage over the uh, over the seats. Sure, I get that. Um, I don't know how many were over there, but um, I guess we've reduced capacity. I, I guess we're selling fewer tickets, which is probably smart in the era of digital entertainment, you know, the streaming services and the online, excuse me, the, um, the in-home experience has become so overwhelmingly pleasant and pleasurable that people are choosing to not go to the games. Um, I get it, but I think when you say, okay, it's a sellout, you're right, it's a sellout because every ticket that was for sale was sold. But there should have been more tickets for sale if you've got signage draped over some of the seats on the, on the old front stretch, the new the new backstretch. But yeah, Kerry deserves a lot of credit. They did a great in job. an age and era where people are choosing to not attend live sporting events, Darlington showed extremely well on television. I mean, I watch racing every weekend. You never see that. I mean, it's always people dressed as empty bleachers, you know, sitting sporadically throughout the audience. There weren't a lot of empty seats except those that were covered by, you know, some of the tarped signage. So, um, yeah, congratulations to Darlington congratulations to Kerry Tharp. Um, it showed extremely well on the, on the television. Had a little bit of a rain delay, but not much. And, um, you know, Labor Day weekend, there was a threat of sporadic showers. And um, anyway, they like got away with that. In. And then you go into, um, I mean, we'll leave there and go to college football. Um, what say you? I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I, I think it's um, it's a little bit like, you know, we shall see. You know, the old Chinese now, now before, proverb. Now before you talk about the offensive line and the defensive line of your Gamecocks, let's talk about what's really important. The lights, the ribbon boards, and the sound, baby. I guess. I mean, I, people oh, got man. excited. It was I mean, I've never known it get that excited when they turned the lights down, but, you know, it got really excited. <laughs> it I mean, was I, I cool. Thought, I thought the audience erupted when a touchdown was scored, not when the lights went down. <laughs> but it was louder when the lights went down, and then these red lights start flashing, and there's a kind of a banner circling the stadium. Got me a little bit dizzy, but I drunk a bunch. Uh, 
I'm kidding. I didn't drink that much. <laughs> so, to get dizzy. You, you, were, that. you were predisposed to dizziness. Yeah, and then the I was like, really... turn those things off, man. You're making my head hurt. Turn it back on to, um, uh, no, I thought of Roger. <laughs> I really did. If I was sitting in my seat, I said, he'd love this. Because, <laughs> I mean, it's like music blowing your head off. Mm-hmm. And it's like these lights, and the lights go off and on, and the red lights come on, and the red lights go off. And, you know, this banner is chasing around the stadium uh, red, white, and then, uh, you know, rooster crowing. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's entertainment. I mean, there, there's no doubt about that. I loved and it. We live in this very entertainment era. So um, they've answered the bell as it comes to that. But, yeah, I mean, when the lights went off and the crowd went crazy, I thought somebody scored a touchdown in the dark. <laughs> I mean, I, I just I thought I'd missed it. You know, did, did I miss something here or not? Oh, they turned the lights down. It's those red lights and all that flashing uh, going around the stadium. So, I mean, it's a, it's a um, it's an entertainment extravaganza and um young people love that stuff and i guess you got to put your money where where the future Mm is um the action on the field was very uh, underwhelming i mean it just not you know as a gamecock fan you go into that game not having any idea what to expect um underwhelming got the w well i mean he scored 14 points on two block punts if you do that every week you'll have a chance to win a lot of games (laughs) i just doubt you block two punts every week score touchdowns um i'll put it this way the offense scored 21 the punt block team scored 14. Um, there, there. There's a good True. way to win. Uh, and I'm not trying to be a negative uh, guy because a win is a win is a win. And we'll get to Clemson here in just a second. But, yeah, the punt the punt block team scored 14 points. Uh, the offense scored 21. Um, here's a question that I don't think we know the answer to. I think Georgia Southern's pretty good. I mean, it's a Sunbelt team. But I'm telling you guys, this weekend proved to me that you better be careful with Georgia State, App State, Coastal. I'll say this, Rev, in full disclosure. If I were the AD at South Carolina, ain't no way I'd play App State, Coastal, Georgia State. No way. That they, I mean, they've got everything to, to gain, to nothing to lose. And they have good football players, man. I mean, these schools have good football players now. And, um, and they come in with a chip on their shoulder. I mean, they come into those stadiums with a big chip on their shoulder. Um, East Carolina would have been the... Um, for a long time, it was East Carolina. Then it was East Carolina and Central Florida. You know, they, they were the, the, the little brother yeah, of whomever. Yeah, I mean, they, they could be. But, I mean, no. I mean, if you're an NC State or a North Carolina, you're playing App State or East Carolina, you know going in you've got your hands full. And I think South Carolina still perceives themselves as a cut above those schools. Um, they probably are, but they're not Georgia. They're not Alabama. I mean, Alabama and Georgia know they're cut above. South Carolina thinks they're cut above. Um, Georgia State, Coastal, App State. There's a few more universities that belong in that category uh, or that grouping. That would be a better way to say it, the grouping. But, yeah, I mean, you know, the the Gamecocks struggled offensively. Um, I think 79 or so yards rushing. Um, It looks to me, once again, Ray, if you want me to get into the weeds just a little bit here. Mm -hmm. I mean, they've got a guy that coached in the NFL as their offensive coordinator, and they seem to be running a very complicated offensive line blocking scheme. And I saw guys running by people to block someone else. And, I mean, your biggins need to hit somebody near you. I mean, but they, they would run past a guy to get to another guy. And that's just, I mean, football is a very reactionary sport. I mean, you can't think about it while you're doing it. you got to think about it before you do it. Okay, if this guy drops, if this guy comes, if this guy shoots, if this guy delayed, you know what I mean? I mean, you, you play the game before the play. And you've got these responsibilities and assignments, and it just looks to me like the Gamecock offensive line for a year and a game has been very confused in what their responsibilities are. Um, 
one thing that I watched as someone who's played a little football in my life, um, the tight ends and offensive wide receivers sucked at blocking. I mean, we can blame the offensive line because we expect the guards and tackles and center and even the tight end to some degree to be good blockers. But, but the wide receivers at South Carolina, that was as abysmal uh, an effort I've seen in a long, long time at blocking. And they have responsibilities, not just to catch the football, but on some of these perimeter runs, they've got a job to block and, and, and create some opportunities for some of the running backs, and they just didn't do it. Um, so, so when I look at the game, um, I think South Carolina had better talent, not a lot better talent. I mean, you know, I don't think NC State had a lot better talent than East Carolina. I don't think North Carolina had a lot better talent than App State. I think those teams, you better be very, very. And then the Coastal beats Army, you know, down down in Conway with, with a record crowd. So, you know, I I would just be careful when you play those teams in that grouping. I, you better bring your A game. You better at least bring your A minus game. You bring your B game if you're South Carolina, you lose. And had the Gamecocks not blocked two punts for touchdowns, I mean, it's a 21 you know, 21-21 affair. I mean, it's a 21-14 affair, and who knows what happens um, if that's the fact. Now, kicked. I guess the way you win if you're a Gamecock fan, you kick two field goals over 50 yards, and you block two punts for touchdowns. I mean, if you do that every week, you probably will win some games. Just don't count on it. Um, but, but it's a lot of unknowns. I mean, we'll see this weekend as they travel to Fayetteville, Arkansas, and play a top 25 team with a little better talent. Not a lot better talent, but a little better talent. But I mean, that's really where you'll find out if the, if the Gamecocks have improved or if it's kind of the same. But my concern is it looked like the same problems on offensive line Saturday night as it did throughout the entire year last year, except for maybe the Mayonnaise Bowl. I mean, for whatever reason, that's when they ran the gimmicky offense, put the kid that played wide receiver at quarterback and ran the Wildcat and all these other quarterbacks. I mean, that's kind of gimmicky football and good luck winning with gimmicky football. Um, go to Clemson. I can't comment on anything that happened in the second half because I went to bed. But Clemson looked sluggish in the first half against um, Georgia Tech. Uh, the quarterback looked thinner, more agile, a little more accurate throwing the football. But they just lack identity on offense. I mean, they just look to me like they're not sure of themselves. Um, they're not confident in themselves. Now, Clemson has the luxury of a world-class defense. I mean, there, there's no doubt about it. They're as good as um, they look like Georgia and Alabama when they go on the field. Now, when the offense goes on the field, they don't look like Georgia and Alabama. But when that defense gets on the field, it looks like Georgia and Alabama. Uh, the difference in Georgia and Alabama, and to me, everybody else is when Georgia Alabama's offense gets on the field, they look as good as the defense. Clemson has a big disparity between how good their offense is and how good um, their defense is. I was thinking about this driving over this morning. The, the issue with Clemson, we don't know when that question gets answered. I mean, when do they play a quality opponent? I don't know. I don't know their schedule. Somebody could call in and tell me, but I don't see. I mean, there's not an offense on their schedule other than maybe Florida State that poses any threat to that defense. So when you look at Clemson, um, you may, unless they just lay an egg, I mean, they did it twice last year. You know, they just didn't show up and play good football, turn it over a lot. But if, if that defense plays as good as that defense can play, there's nobody on their schedule that should give them any issues. I mean, Wake Forest, I hear you, but it's Wake Forest, dude. It's a private school with 3,500 students. I mean, really and truly, I heard a Clemson fan last night say, you know, we'll find out at Wake. Come on, it's a private school with 3,500 students. I mean, is that the measuring stick? Come on. Uh, and But that's just the problem with Clemson right now, playing in the league they play in. They're just not going to be challenged 
a whole lot. Wait, I thought one of the TV commentators last night said they had a very difficult schedule. Well, I mean, TV commentators say what TV commentators say. <laughs> I, time, I don't I see the difficulty of the schedule, <laughs> especially when you watch their defense play. Um, their defense is going to be dominant. I mean, it's going to be a lockdown, shutdown defense that isn't going to let teams breathe. And unless you've got offensive players like Georgia or Alabama or, you know, a couple of other schools, uh, Ohio State comes to mind. But but once again, Rev, it's very, very early, and I can't comment. They scored 41 points, so 17 in the fourth quarter. True. I saw that this morning, but I didn't watch any of it, so I can't comment on the on the second half and how much better they looked, how much crisper they looked. Um, you know, I think they played the freshman, uh, the five-star freshman at quarterback a little bit in the second half. So, so you know, cliff note, I mean, really, kind of a, um, a recap with, with the Gamecocks, an okay effort, nothing nothing to get excited about. The issues on offensive line are concerning. You'll, you'll go to Fayetteville, Arkansas, noon kick in Fayetteville. Um, we'll find out. I mean, you'll find out Saturday whether South Carolina has improved or not and whether Spencer Rattler is a legitimately um, improvement. I mean, he's obviously a better athlete. I mean, no question about that. You watch him escape the rush, throw on the run, do some things that, you know, they just couldn't do last year because of his athleticism and just his skill set. But um, but I think with the Gamecocks, you'll find out very quickly whether they're improved or not by the road trip to, to Arkansas. With the Clemson schedule, I don't know. I mean, I don't know at what point this team will be challenged on its schedule, especially the defense. I mean, it, it's a it's a bona fide big time college football defense. Um, my daughter was home last night for Labor Day, and she and I watched the first half together. She's going back this morning, and uh. She said, "What do you think?" I said, "They look like Georgia and Alabama on defense, <laughs> you know, and that's I mean that's that's the tall weeds, so to speak." Um, another sporting story, and then we'll take our break. The Braves. I mean, the Braves. I think the last time you and I talked, they were three games out of mm-hmm. first place. The Braves are now one game out of first place. Sweet. So, of all the sports we follow, we could probably argue that the Braves had the best long weekend of any sports team. Gamecocks, so so. Tigers a little better. Once again, I can't pass judgment on the second half because I didn't see it. Um, the race was sold out. Congratulations to Kerry. But but of all the sports we talk about on Wake Up Carolina, the Braves probably had. And they had a little more encouraging news yesterday. I read the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that Mike Soroka had another dominant pitching performance in the minor leagues. And as this um, as this season winds down, they're going to need another bona fide arm um, if they're going to catch the Mets. So, yeah, I mean, the Mets uh, rained out yesterday, play two, play one today, two tomorrow. The Braves play today and tomorrow on the West Coast. And then uh, the, the schedule's kind of equalized. I mean, they both play the Phillies, Freehold. I mean, I saw this on the, uh, I, I looked down the Mets schedule. and the, I mean, there's a lot of games the Braves have with the Phillies and a lot of games the Mets have with the Phillies. So the Phillies can play themselves into a wild card, uh, probably not into a contending spot in the uh in the national league east but uh yeah of all the teams we follow the 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 braves probably had the most successful long weekend take a break we'll be back in just a minute 843-661-0937 takes tuesdays to make fridays that's right uh 843 once again 843-661-0937 rev was asking about something kind of interesting during the break well as we go into a new year you know it's time to start did did burt pay for one segment or two segments Um, this is not sports i mean this is kind of sports intertwined with culture and society and higher higher education but as we go into the new year you know you can start kind of start assessing the effect nil has on college athletics right and so what do you think? Well, I mean, 
that, that's a, that is probably the most interesting question in college athletics today. Here, here's the quandary. Um, we've toyed around with the notion of amateurism for a long, long time. We knew it wasn't amateur athletics because the coach of the team is making $10 million a year, $9 million a year. The assistant coaches are making two and a half, three million. Um, you know, so some of the athletes are, I mean, we, we just always knew that you kind of wink and nod. It's amateur. Okay, right. It's amateur. It's, yeah. Okay. It's amateur athletics. But now that it's um, out in the open. Well, I mean, you got lots and you got, you know, sound effects, but it's a, it's an entertainment business. I mean, the NFL's accepted the moniker of we are in the entertainment business. What is ESP and what do they mean? I mean, they, they were ahead of the curve. I mean, they saw this coming. Um, the NIL to me is the most interesting part of college athletics in America today. And here's what I predict. I mean, I don't know this is going to happen, but I think you're going to see many, many, many boosters, supporters, donors, which would be you and I. I mean, you're in the Gamecock Club. Mm-hmm. You play money. I mean, I split, you know, we got a weird way we do it, but there's about five of us who do a joint affair. And we um we believe that's the best way we get bang for our buck. We pool money and we buy tickets and parking and all these other sorts of things. And then we disperse accordingly. Um, you do it the traditional way, right? Yeah. I mean, you're in the Gamecock Club. Yep. You buy tickets. You get a parking spot. We do it a little bit differently. And we have uh, for many years. Um, but here's what I predict will happen. When they start going to people like us and say, we need a little more to be competitive. I, I believe that people like us are going to say, I- I'm not doing it. I mean, I, you know, let, let's get I mean, back it already. To, it stings pretty good well, I mean, to do just re, to get a re, the parking re, place in the tickets. The reality, it stings a lot. Yeah. I mean, it's a big sting. I mean, it, it ain't just a little small yellow jacket. I mean, it's one of these right. killer hornets. I mean, you know, it, it's a point. You. I mean, it's a point for me where, you know, I really have to assess whether it's worth it. I mean, I love it. Had a great time. You know, I was so glad I was there, you know, Saturday night. But, you know, I. Uh, you really have to think hard. Better than half of Gamecock and Tiger fans make a financial calculus about whether to go on the vacation they want to go on or buy those tickets. And good for right. the Gamecocks and Tigers. Up until now, those fans have decided to buy those tickets. Um, true amateur athletics means you're going to have tryouts at 1 o'clock on Saturday afternoon. You're going to get the big boys and put them on the line. The fast boys put them in the backfield. I mean, that's, that's the true notion of amateur athletics. Uh, but we've allowed it to kind of become – it's morphed or, or evolved into something that is fundamentally different. Um, and this is the next step. You know, we got a million-dollar collective, a $5 million collective. we got this five-star quarterback that wants a million dollars to come. I mean, I told you in some of the recruiting rankings that I've looked at, there is a NIL value placed on the recruit. In other words, he's a four-star offensive lineman, and they believe his market value is X. I mean, that's not amateur athletics. Stop with that nonsense. But here's what I believe is going to happen. The teams that eat, breathe, and sleep football, they're probably going to be okay. Um, the the Alabamas of the world, the Clemsons of the world, the Texas, Texas A&Ms of the world. Now, Clemson's going to have a problem. Uh, I don't think Clemson can keep up in the arms race. I mean, I, I just don't. I mean, if it comes down to, to do-re-me, and you, you got Texas, Texas A&M, Ohio State, Michigan, Georgia, you know, Florida – um clemson can't play in that world i mean they just can't in the nil arrangement i mean in other words if it's all about the money i mean if money talks and bullcrap walks and to some degree that's always been the case but clemson's been able to kind of wedge themselves in a niche way i mean they're kind of a niche team um a brand but they got that paul and that loyalty and that they got those championships now so they're a player there but but do you really believe that if a if a five-star quarterback is on the market so to speak 
Texas, Texas A&M, Florida, Michigan, Ohio State, Clemson are bidding for that player. How does Clemson get that kid? They don't. I mean, that kid goes to Texas or Texas A&M. I'll give an example. The University of South Carolina has had three people in its history give gifts of more than $10 million. The University of Texas has had five people this year give over $25 million. Texas A&M wow. is in a similar position. So if it comes down to nothing but the money and all about the money, then A&M, Texas, Florida, Georgia, Ohio State, I mean, the, the haves will have more and the have-nots. And, and I want to give Clemson credit. I think they're a consummate overachiever. How they've been able to keep up until today is beyond me. But I do believe this, Rev. I think the people like you and I, who love going to the games and we want to be competitive and we want to win. We're not asking for a national championship every year. We want to be competitive. Don't want to get boat race 30 nothing by arch rival like you did last year. Um, I think a lot of those fans are going, ah, I'm out. You know, I give this much money, and that makes I mean, that, that makes a big difference in my financial life. They're asking me for this much plus another 20%. In other words, I give the university all of this money, and now they want me to give this collective all of this other money, the NIL money. How many billionaires are in South Carolina? How many 150 or 200 millionaires are in South Carolina? I mean, there's some, and they can do what they want to do. I mean, they can give as much as they want to the Clemson or South Carolina or Alabama or Georgia, but there are a lot more in Texas, Texas A&M, Ohio State, Michigan. Southern California, Florida. I mean, if those teams really, I mean, if it becomes all about the NIL, all about the money, you're going to see a bigger separation of the haves and have-nots. And the Gamecocks and Tigers right now, I mean, despite the Gamecocks' performance, their conference affiliation puts them in the category of a have. I mean, football-wise, they're not a have. They're not a have-not. They're kind of caught between being a have and have-not. But their conference affiliation would probably lump them in the, in the category of those who have. Clemson, because of their history and tradition, are obviously a have. Clemson shouldn't be as big a have as the Gamecocks are, but they've overachieved and the Gamecocks have underachieved for roughly 100 years, and I've lived through 50 of that. Um, I was thinking about that over the weekend. Uh, I went to my first Gamecock game 50 years ago. Uh, 1972 is when I went to my first South Carolina game ever, and for what stupid reason, I fell in love with the place and have been a glutton for punishment ever since. But no, the, the NIL, I think, is going to be I mean, it's going to be real good for those who have enormous assets and resources. I think some of the fan bases are going to tap out. I mean, I think some of the fan bases are going to say, hey, man, I mean, I, I give this university more money than I can really afford to give. My wife's getting on me about not going on a vacation for the last couple of years. My kid's mad with me because, you know, I spent all this money. I didn't get a new truck. And I mean, it's that kind of money now. I mean, you know it. I mean, it is an investment now in your entertainment value or entertainment dollar. And I just think fan bases who don't see a championship on the horizon are going to say, um, I, I'm tapping out. You know, th th they can have it. I mean, they, you know, I give them, let's just hypothetically say between contribution, ticket, parking, you're at three or four grand a year. I mean, I know a lot of people pay more than that. But I know one personally, very personally, that pays more than that. <laughs> to be a fan of a college football team that has been mediocre at best. And now all of a sudden you're saying, hey, the problem is you fans aren't giving enough money. We've got this NIL collective that we're trying to generate $3 million a year in so we can you know, sign the best offensive lineman, sign the best defensive lineman, sign a tight end or a quarterback from here or there. And I think a number of fans are going to say, eh, count me out. I mean, I, you know, I'll go to games at App State. I'll go to games at Coastal. See, I think teams like Coastal could benefit from this because Coastal's not an arms race. I mean, Coastal accepts where they are. They're highly competitive. I mean, they're extremely competitive 
in that brand of football. But I think Coastal, I mean, Coastal doesn't have this false sense of, of uh, you know, kind of, hey, we can compete with Texas in the NIL. We can compete with, um, I mean, even South Carolina Clemson. You know, we can compete with the Gamecocks and Titans. No, I mean, I think Coastal, and I think it's kind of a low-pressure environment. I think it's closer to amateur athletics. And I think a lot of Gamecock Tiger fans will, will kind of look down the road and say, I don't know, man. I mean, I want to win. And Clemson has historically won. So they'd be more inclined to kind of give that extra umph to compete with A&M and Texas. But, but I think a lot of fans are going to say, I, I, it's not fun anymore. When I've got that much money on the line, and I'm that intense about what happens on Saturday, it ceases to be fun. And why do we go to games? I mean, did we go to games to be that intense about winning and losing, or did we go to games to have a good time? I mean, winning makes it fun. There's no doubt about it. But at what price? I mean, at what price is it not worth being a winner? And I think fans are beginning, fans of teams like, I hate to say this, but the Gamecocks and Tigers could be two of those teams that you, you've got a um, you've got a collective, an NIL organization within your university with $5 million. Let's say Clemson and South Carolina have $5 million in the NIL. They look over across the board, and Georgia's got $60 million. Florida's got $75 million. Texas has got $100 million. Texas A&M's got $125 million. I mean, I'm just making these numbers up, but I think that's where we get at some point in time. And, I mean, if it's all about the money, the teams with all the money, or the teams that's going to win uh, all of the games, mm-hmm. and amateurism just completely flies out of the window. And I think fan bases say, if I want to follow pro football, I'll buy tickets to the Panthers. I'll buy tickets to the Falcons. I'll buy tickets to the New England Patriots or Indianapolis Colts. I mean, if I want to be a fan of professional football, then I'd just be a a fan of real professional football. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. 843-661-0937. One of the non-sports-related endeavors I took on this weekend was talking to Robert Cahaley for a good bit. Robert's got a parking spot near mine. And he doesn't use it. He calls me and says, hey, you know, anybody needs it? You want to use it? Blah, 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 blah. Um, he was going to the Formula One race. I'll tell you, he's a big Formula One fan. And he said the reason he gave up on NASCAR is because um, gun manufacturers aren't allowed to sponsor race cars. And Robert said, being true to my Second Amendment uh, credentials or bona fides, okay. I'm not. Uh, he gave up on NASCAR once they disallowed a gun manufacturer from being a sponsor of the car. But our conversation was so interesting. Robert said, and I quote, that I've never seen any single issue move the meter in an election like student debt forgiveness has. I mean, it's kind of interesting, Rev. You start from here. Now, what, now in which direction? Well, I mean, because a lot Republicans, of people uh, I mean, accuse the Biden well, administration of trying to buy votes, right? Look, Robert may be blowing smoke, and I'm buying the smoke. I mean, he may be misleading me, and I have such faith in him that I believe anything he says in the world of polling. Robert believes today there is no honest polling going on in America. Now, he's a pollster. You know, and he would argue that we Wait do. Wait He's not a pollster. He, well, he pays for, a, no, he provides accurate information to wealthy companies and individuals who are willing to pay for it. Right. I mean, that's what he says he does. <laughs> and I'll tell you the reason he says that. It's interesting because Saturday he told me, he said, that's why I don't call myself a pollster anymore. Because I think all pollsters are liars. I mean, they're on the take. Mm. You know, you. it's almost like um, I need the Democrat to be ahead six points. Bring me back a poll that says the Democrats ahead six points. I need 72% of Americans to support this. Go poll and find a way to make it appear that 72% of Americans support this. Um, I saw an NPR poll that said 55% of Americans support debt forgiveness. Robert's poll says it's somewhere around 18%. 6% of Americans knew. 
Well, somewhere between 5 and 6% of Americans knew that the government guaranteed student debt. 95% of American taxpayers who are the guarantor on this student debt had no idea that they're guaranteeing the student debt. I mean, that's a bizarre number to me. So, so when you start talking about debt, student debt forgiveness and what is and what ain't, um, and that's not the big concern I have. The big concern I have is some of these, um, some of the, the Penn School of Business. You've heard a couple of numbers floated around in the last couple of days. The $300 billion turned into over a trillion. And, the, you know, the liberal media is not reporting on this, but the reason the $300 billion is turned into north of a trillion dollars, if they've dug, they've dig, ah, they have dug into some of the income-driven repayment modifications that have been made on this, uh, you know, this Biden uh, student debt forgiveness um, farce, ripoff that, um, that the American public are becoming a little bit aware of. But Robert says that this has put about 30 more House seats in play and about five more Senate seats in play. Um, four or five governorships are in play. Now, now once again, this is his polling. This is his, you know, providing accurate information to people who are willing to, to pay for it. But I said, Robert, the polling doesn't show that. He said, how many times do you, I mean, do you not trust me on this? I mean, he said, I trust you to give a good speech. I trust you to host a radio show. I don't trust you to tell me how to do my job. I'm telling you, Ken, there aren't any honest brokers in this profession any longer. There aren't people with a genuine and sincere and dedicated effort to find out what the truth is. NPR needs 55% of Americans to support student debt forgiveness. They know it can't be 75% because nobody believed that. So NPR hires a polling company, and the polling company samples a bunch of liberal Democrats. And 55% of the liberal Democrats said, of course I support, you know, the, the rich guy picking up the tab for the, for the little guy. Uh, that's just kind of the notion of, of collectivism or redistributionism. But it is, it's been so, I mean, Robert was so emphatic about they have really overplayed their hand here. They being the Democrats, they have really and truly um, convinced themselves that they can do no wrong. Um, if you're not responsible for the high price of gas and you're not responsible for inflation and the media kind of go, us, all this is Putin's fault. I mean, but Joe Biden didn't do anything wrong. Next thing you know, you say, well, I'm not going to pay off everybody's student debt. I want to delve into this, um, this income-driven repayment modification that they made because I want to piss my audience off on a Tuesday morning, <laughs> and I think that's about as good a way as any to do it. Let's go to the phone. Verd in Marlboro County. Hey, Verd. Good morning. Uh, we're about 64 days away, Ken, from the, without a doubt, the most important election in, uh, I guess, Marlboro County, South Carolina, and the nation's history. Uh, you know, Labor Day generally ends the summer and starts the critical phase of uh the election cycle, and I don't think it's never been more critical than it is uh, this morning on this cloudy Monday morning. Uh, Ken, I think you're right. We have, I think, the student debt was a big overstep of the Democratic Party. But you know, we got a lot of winning issues. The inflation, the abortion is still out there. Uh, the Biden administration trying to blame uh, President Trump for the uh, uh, five points down in uh, reading by the elementary school kids uh, when they're the ones, the teachers' unions are all backed by the Democratic Party. They're the ones trying to keep the schools closed, and that's the damage that was done to the uh, elementary school kids. But anyway, we've got a lot of great candidates running, uh, got a great governor, lieutenant governor, and uh, up and down the ballot, uh, we just have much better candidates than the Democrats do. And, uh, and of course, I'm encouraging, and I think that our South Carolina Republican Party we're encouraging people to vote absentee and also encourage them to vote uh, early because November 8th is prime uh, uh, 
tropical storm type season and a rainy five days uh, event before the election, uh, the turnout would be terrible, which plays right into the hands of the Democrats. So, uh, very important election. We got to have a great turnout, and uh, the early voting was a big winner in June. And uh, I can already see, and I talked to Governor Master last Monday and Anderson. Uh, our our numbers on absentees in Marlboro County went down from 2,500 in the normal June election to 522. The ballot holders are pretty pretty much out of business because of the felony charges and the. Uh, the limit of only five people that they can help. So uh, everything is good. We just got to get the people to polls on November day. Thank you, Vern. Appreciate it, my man. 843-661-0937 is our number. That'll be an interesting dynamic in the national election, not South Carolina here. The states that have addressed some of the ballot harvesting. I mean, we know the states that aggressively address, put in uh, certain provisions about uh, drop boxes and absentee and early and unsolicited or unsolicited mail-in ballots. Some of the states didn't do that. Pennsylvania is still a fairly liberal state. Wisconsin still a fairly liberal state when it comes to who can vote and who cannot vote. The reason I'm optimistic about Herschel is I think Georgia has addressed many of the issues, not all, but many of the issues that allowed Democrats to win in the last election cycle. Take a break back in just a minute. Let's delve into this for a second. Let's really try to put our thinking caps on together. I know it's Tuesday morning. I know we just got back from a long weekend, a college football NASCAR Braves field weekend braves had the best weekend of all i mean the gamecocks had a good weekend clemson had a good weekend um nascar had a good weekend the braves had the best weekend of all when it comes to sports and entertainment uh but they're in the sports and entertainment business now, being something a happened with professional the, Met, the mets game because they were supposed to play yesterday did they not rained play? out got um, okay. yeah got delayed because of rain they'll play one today and two tomorrow okay getaway day is what they call it so they'll play at twelve thirty-five. might be two today Two today or two tomorrow. I get my days all goofed up because we get Monday off, and today feels like Monday, but obviously it is not. Have you been following, uh, since you do watch the Braves, you've been following this, uh, it's not controversy, but this uh, dust-up between the Mets and the Braves and the, the trumpet theme, the, the narco music. I have music. not. You're, you're, you're my expert when it comes to theatrics uh, around ball. I mean, I, I'm a traditionalist, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm kind of the, um, yeah. I mean, you got all jacked up about the lights and the, you know, and, and the, the what do you call it the, 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 the ribbon boards yeah the ribbon boards and all and these the sound other oh yeah well, I, mean, I wasn't the only one i might have been the only one not excited right there, there was a 105 year old man beside me that wasn't really excited <laughs> but he was asleep you know and he woke up in the third quarter and asked his wife you ready to go <laughs> I, I love it <laughs> there's always these old codgers you know what i mean it could be it could be tied with with six minutes to go in the game but if it's 10 45 he's going to the house i mean it doesn't matter to him he's been going since 19 alt seven and if it's tied 27-27 and it's the greatest game in the history of Gamecock football, <laughs> if it's 10-45, he's up and gone. It, <laughs> he, he ain't getting stuck in that traffic none uh, for a night game. So No, I've not kept uh, up with the um, – I did see something on Twitter about it, um, some walk-up music yeah, walk-up or something. Yeah, the walk-up music for, for Diaz okay. uh, for the Mets. And uh, Contreras, actually, they use it for his walk-up music uh, for the Braves. And now there was a little dust up last week about, no, that's that's our deal. That's the Mets deal. Well, there's been obviously some back and forth about this. But uh, um, I think that the thing that there was a rain delay for the Braves game the other night. And during the rain delay, the Mets lost their game, I think, to the Nationals. And they played the trumpet theme in Truist Park for the fans okay. that were waiting. So a little backhanded slap there. Yeah. Gotcha. Good deal. Let's go to the phone. Breeze. Hello, Breeze. I don't know why any. Oh, <clears throat> Republican or somebody that supports Trump, but to give a pity to a university where the um, 
administration hates everything you stand for. 99% of the players consider you a racist, white supremacist, or a fascist. But, you know, going back, I wonder, have you ever had heard of a Republican or a Democrat ever defining fascism? I mean, Nazi, the Nazi, when you hear the Nazi party, that's just that old abbreviation for National Socialism. But um, I was reading over the weekend about fascism and where it came from. When it came from a guy named um, Giovanni Gentile, who basically believed there were two types of diametrically opposed types of democracy, a liberal democracy, which America should be, and what he described as a true democracy, and quoting, where individuals willingly subordinate themselves to the state. In other words, your God is the state and the government. Now, when Democrat communist, godless Democrat communist fascists call you a fascist, well, whether someone that willingly subordinates themselves to the state, who does that sound like? Now, the thing they didn't like about liberal democracy was they considered it selfish because it gave too many liberties and it was too individualistic and had too many freedoms to the individual. That was what Giovanni uh, Gentile disliked about liberal democracy. So which one, which one falls under which party? Well, obviously, the damn fascists are the Democrats. Now, which means that the government and the state is your God, basically. So no, why no Republican has ever brought this up is beyond me. I know why the Democrats have not brought it up, because, hell, that's who they are. So, you know, they, they want to make it all about that Nazi is national socialism, not national democracy. It's national socialism. So anyway, and then you start talking about, you know, threats to democracy. The Yugoslavian waiter I was talking to last Wednesday, he spent 22 years of war toward Serbia, you know, that Bosnia war. He said, he said most of his people laughed at January the 6th. You know, a guy dressed up as some cartoon character walking through the Capitol, and then you had them talking about an insurrection. And then you look at the 254 riots where they burnt down cities, and the daggone Democrat fascists called it daggone protecting democracy. And just like the damn polls, you'd have to be a complete idiotic moron to believe any poll that you hear from any of the daggone Democrat, godless fascists, daggone um, media outlets. So, you know, your, your buddy's dead all right. I don't know how right he is, you know, and, and it's amazing. You know, again, when you said 95% of the idiots in this country didn't think that they were on the hook for the damn student debt. I mean, come on, man. How do you go through life just that clueless? Thank you, Breeze. Well, the reason that the left uses fasc, uh, fascism and fascist is it's totalitarianism. It's, it's, it's a dictatorship. And Trump is a, uh, you know, a, a fascist figure in their mind. I mean, he's a totalitarian. He's authoritarian. He's a, um, uh, he's a dictator. I mean, you know what I mean? It's, he's, a, he's a cult leader. I mean, everybody I, knows I never, what Trump I never got that. that well, I mean, of course you don't get that. I mean, you're smarter than that. The majority of Trump supporters are smarter than that. I don't put my faith in Trump. I mean, I love Trump, the political disruptor. I love the political blunt instrument of this Donald Trump. But I don't put my political faith in Donald Trump. I mean, I don't trust Trump to save America. I trust Trump to show us what's wrong with America. 
and then it's up to us to save it or not to salvage it or not um but but the reason you know they they, they say we're we're the fascist is we put a lot of um we we've made this guy a big deal in our world and they perceive him to be totalitarian and you know he's an he's a very authoritative figure um kind of a dominant male alpha male I mean, the liberals don't like that anyway. They, they don't like masculinity, and they don't like dominance, and they don't like winning. I mean, they like everybody getting a trophy. I mean, that's kind of the um, the redistributionist collectivist mindset. Let's all finish the race at about the same time. Doesn't matter if the king goes to gym every day and Rev Dutton. I mean, let, let's make sure they finish the race at about the same time because that's fair. I mean, you know, the government controls outcomes. I mean, here we go down the road. I mean, I, I'm telling you. I mean, I'm telling you things you already know. Uh, we're just reminding you of these things. But, but Bree says something interesting a second ago that, that I think is very revealing. And I think this could really play into a lot of different facets of our lives. If I'm working or associated with a university in America today, I'm concerned. I mean, I am deeply concerned about what Joe Biden tried to do because what Biden tried to do is going to end up shining a light in places that people don't want lots to shine. And that is the crevices and corners of higher education. Um, 95% of Americans didn't know that they were the guarantor for 90% of the student debt. Let me say that again. 95% of Americans did not know that they were the guarantor of 90% of all student debt in America today. All of a sudden, one day they wake up and say, do what? I didn't sign anything to guarantee that debt. I didn't go to college. I paid back my debt. You know, I paid my student debt. I helped my kid pay their student debt. My mom didn't go to college. My dad didn't go to college. I didn't go to college. The hell am I on the hook? For that debt. And all of a sudden, the model that I portrayed is a scam. And I think I've said it uh, much earlier than some of these self-professed experts are saying now. So all of a sudden, the, the debate is, what, what do you mean? Whoa, whoa. I mean, I get Medicare. I get Medicaid. I get Social Security. I don't like some of the aspects of those programs. But I've always known that to some degree I'm involved. I mean, I give and I take and I give and I take. But whoa. I didn't go to college, and I am guaranteeing 90% of all student debt in America today? And the government's going to forgive or basically transfer that debt from one ledger, that being those who borrow the money, receive the services, to those who are not. And Robert tried to explain to me. I mean, he went through these races, and I didn't have a pen nor a paper. I'll try to get him on in the next week or so. But he went through race after race of the, I mean, the, the, the macro shift, I mean, the monumental shift. And, and where this race was prior to. So if I'm a Republican running for office today, I actually sent this to our some of our delegation, I would just harp on that. I mean, because once again, uh, the, the pollster in America that has got Trump right more than anybody says that I mean, there's just so much hate to be made here. Well, if you're affiliated or associated with a university, we're talking about NIL and some of the um, – you know, some of the university football, college athletics and whatnot. I asked Rev during the break, I said, okay, Rev, I mean, whatever you send to the university, if you could deduct 25% of that, same amount of money, but declare that money for the NIL, would you do it? Rev said, for no more money, yeah, because the NIL is probably going to be more effective in the money getting in the bowels of some bureaucrat or bureaucracy called college athletics. I mean, it would be highly more effective. I mean, if you give your money, let's say let's say Rev gives $1,000 a year to the University of South Carolina. He gives more than that. But let's say he gives a thousand bucks a year to the university, and all of a sudden he gets a a chance to give seven fifty to the university, two fifty to the NIL. He knows what the NIL is doing. He really 
doesn't know where that 750 goes. Right. I mean, it kind of goes a little bit here and it goes a little bit there. They made improvements around the stadium and they pay some people out of here. Next thing you know, Rev finds out they got six deputy um, athletics directors. I'm not saying they do, but I mean, he finds out they do. That's the system of higher education. And and here's what's so bad about this, guys. The um, I mean, I read it over the weekend, read a good article in Reason, and I actually read some of the Penn Wharton School of Finance um, determinations. I mean, I think that's what they called it. They didn't call it a um, an analysis. They called it a determinative paper. So they've determined that um, the income-driven repayment modifications of the student debt forgiveness, once again, it's not forgiveness. I'm using their language. It's a transfer. I mean, they're transferring the debt from one group of people, those who borrow the money, those who receive the services, to another. Larry's exactly right. The money's gone. I mean, the money went to the university. The university received a check from the government for the amount that it was going to, whatever the kid borrowed, whatever um, whatever John Smith borrowed, the university has that money. What they've done with the money, I don't have any idea. Do you? I mean, they, they have financial disclosures, and they've got to account for, you know, what they do with the money. And I would imagine, uh, we, we said the other day, they've um, they've added 2.50 non-instructional staff for every one student that has been added. Um, DEI is not Dale Earnhardt Incorporated. It is diversity, equity, and inclusion. They've invested billions of dollars in that higher education has. So the the announcement that was made a couple of weeks ago that we've harped on and really harped on, and I'm going to continue to harp on because this is a big story that Democrats need to defend and Republicans need to understand how to argue it. And for the life of me, it amazes me how few Republicans are saying the things that need to be said. Here's what needs to be said. If you're making, if you're if you're a couple, if you're a married couple, the man went to college, the woman went to college, they got degrees, they owe student debt. They make $250,000 a year. I mean, how many of you out there listening to my voice as a couple make two fifty dollars a year? Pretty good income. I mean, it's not get-rich income. There was a day it was, but thanks to the Fed and inflation and the devaluing of the dollar, I mean, it's a real good living, but it's not Maserati, Ferrari kind of money. I mean, there was a day in America, you're nodding your head. If somebody made $250,000 as a family, I mean, they, you know, do they have a house in the Alps or, you know, I mean, it it was like, wow. I mean, nobody makes that kind of money. Well, now, I mean, it takes that kind of money to live a upper middle class life because the Fed's activism has deflated or or basically not, they've, um, they've devalued the currency that is a dollar and, um, and then we're kind of adjusting accordingly. But when you look at the, the couple making 250, they, they potentially get 40 grand retired in student loans, student loan Pell Grants. I mean, it's 20 grand. You can get up to 10 in student debt, 10 in a Pell Grant um, for a couple making less than $250,000 a year. That's the storyline, right? That's the headline. That's what we've been told. That's the $300 billion part of this. When the price tag is $300 billion, that is for giving $40,000 of student debt and Pell Grants for a couple making up to $250,000. Now, if you're a, a dude working on the farm making forty five grand a year never stepped a foot on a college campus, tough. Tough. Life ain't fair. I mean, that's just the, you know, that's the way it is. I mean, that's what the Democrats decided to do. But here's the other part of this that nobody's talking about. The 5% of discretionary income for 10 years. I mean, it was 15, it was 10 to 15% for 20 years. There was always going to be a a, a debt of forgiveness or transfer. Once again, 
Forgiveness means transfer. Transfer means when Washington says forgive, the real world uh, understands transfer. I mean, it's, well, you don't forgive the debt. The debt just simply transfers to somebody else. So, so the, the reason the Wharton School of Business at University of Pennsylvania is saying it's over a trillion dollars, if they, they've looked at some of the income-driven repayment modifications that are made, and it goes from $300 billion to about $1.2 trillion. Because once again, if you are making um, $50,000 a year or more, and you, the new income-driven modifications say that you've only, your payment can exceed 5% of discretionary income, and the loan is forgiven after 10 years. So you make a minimal payment for 10 years. You make very little payment of the principal. In other words, you got a house payment, a car payment, you got all these other bills, but you got 5% discretionary income, but you don't have much discretionary income, and 5% of that goes to pay the student debt. So you're in good standing if you pay that 5% of discretionary income for 10 years, and then it's forgiven. The debt goes away. Ah, that's what the uh, P.N. Wharton School of Business found out. So that number, $300 billion, turns into about $1.2 trillion. So in essence, it's free college for everybody. Now, there's a different way they got there. They didn't have a press conference and announce, hey, we're forgiven $1.7 trillion in student debt. Of the $1.7 trillion on the books today, only about $500 billion would stay there. Roughly $1.2 trillion would be assumed by the American taxpayer when you apply the new income-driven repayment modifications. That's the secret here. And that's what we need to concentrate on, focus on, and talk about. It's not $300 billion. It's not 40000 for someone to make it up to 250000 It's everybody that has ever borrowed money that makes a minimal payment of 5% of discretionary income, and, and the balance of the debt is forgiven after 10 years. But, but That's I what that they've done. If, if, that only is if the balance is 12000 I think, is what I read. No, no, no. I mean, you're right, that, but you didn't read it the right way. Okay. There's some trickerization in here. Okay. you, you got to read it. I'll, I'll elaborate in just a second. Okay. But that, that, that's why the Wharton School of Business and their analysis or, or their, you know, opinionated piece, that's why it says it's more likely to be $1.2 trillion. Um, I mean, it, it's sneaky. I mean, it's, it should be illegal. And, and the president shouldn't have the authority to do this. But, you know, welcome to modern, woke, enlightened, good old U.S. of A. Let's go to the phone, then we'll take a break. Larry in the PD. Hi, Larry. Good morning. How are y'all? Hey, Larry. So let me ask you a question. When the Democrats lower the percentage of the budget that they want to increase. And they say it's a budget cut. So in other words, they were going to increase the budget by 10%. Then they decide to only increase it by 5%. They get on the news and they say, we've cut the budget by 5%. What do we say? We say bullcrap, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. So now when the federal government says, we were going to collect a whole lot of money in interest, and now we're not going to collect as much, you want to say that they transferred the money to somebody else? Of course they I don't did. I think it's completely intellectually honest. No, of course they did. There's a binding contract. So, so somebody signed a contract so, and borrowed so the money. No, agreed, agreed. So here's my question. And again, I've never said, and I will not say, that people who borrowed money shouldn't pay it back. That has never been my argument. I'm, I'm going to pay mine back. I'm not, none of this. Well, I guess maybe the IDR may help me. We'll see. But my question is this. How much money beyond the amount of money that you borrowed for college 
should you have to pay to the federal government? So here's my question. Is it okay for the federal government to, to take money from the taxpayer, loan it to another taxpayer, and earn interest off of your money from another taxpayer? This is another reason why the federal government shouldn't be doing this at all. In my opinion, and that's where that, and that's that's where you and I fundamentally agree. We have some nuanced yeah. disagreements, and you know I respect your opinion. I hope you respect mine. But fundamentally, oh, yeah. the problem is the government got in a business that they never should have gotten yeah. in. I agree, but then the, the other question remains: How much more than an American borrowed should they have to pay back to the government? That's a good I question. It with a bank, but but is this the right place? And I think this is a good argument to make for: We've got to shut this whole thing down we got to stop it completely because we'll never get out of this cycle and this issue because it was set up by banks to run like a revolving debt, and you know how bad revolving debt is. And then you'll pay your balance five times what you borrowed. And that's what he, where, where the issue is for me is where it just people are, you, you know, my, my loan payment, I can't even tell you what it's going to be next year and what I made. It goes up every year. I paid back way more than I ever borrowed, still owe almost all of what I borrowed, and I'm eight years out of school. And Larry, so, what and Larry, the most recent modifications would encourage the school to raise tuition. I mean if you if if you're loaning money and you've always wondered whether the government will pay it back and now you know they will and have already signed an agreement that they will after ten years, if you're running a university, why wouldn't you raise tuition today? Because you're more likely to get repaid than you were yesterday. Well, and it will also make it easier for me to borrow more money sure. because the amount of the payment will go down. Sure. Borrow so as much as you can way. for as long as you can. That's right. And hope that the government forgives it. That's a horrible system. And we agree. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate the call. I mean, once again, I, I understand Larry's argument, and I don't disagree with the argument. I, I just don't know how to get there from here. You see what I'm saying? I mean, that horse has left the... <laughs> That horse has left the station, train has left the barn. Hold on for a second. We're running way behind here. Wow. Kind of a, a pretty good, you know, a better conversation on yeah. a Tuesday after Labor Day than I anticipated. Back in just a minute. 843 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Joe in Hartsville. Morning, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. You know, the student loan program started out in the early 70s with the Pell Grant. And a Pell Grant is just that. You don't have to pay that back. That's why I don't understand why they keep saying you got $20,000 counting 10000 Pell Grant. A grant is just that. It's, it's a grant. So they're misstating what it is to start with. But it, it started out as a benevolent idea that they just, if you look at the chart and go to 2010 and look at what happened to the student loan, once the government took it over. The main reason was they took the interest that they were paying on the student loan and applied it to Obamacare. You know, not all of it, but over the years, it's never been paid back, so it exponentially grows. This NIL thing started out as a benevolent idea. You Members of the band could go out and, and get a, you know, a, a job teaching people how to play instruments, but the football players and the basketball players, they couldn't do any of that. They couldn't get a part-time job, you know, in their field because they were supposedly student athletes. 
So they said, well, we'll get the NIL started so that they can go out and they can get a part-time job. They can sell their name or their likeness and get a contract or whatever. And now it's evolved into where the school is going to do that. And, you know, it's, it's all a great idea, but just like when you teach a man to fish, he never goes hungry, but if you give him fish, he'll be at your doorstep every day. And that's what we're doing. We're giving way too many people fish instead of teaching them how to fish. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. I want to go back and read some of the Obamacare um, legislation. I want to make sure I find this and, and uh, quote correctly. I looked over the weekend, went back and read some of the, um, I mean, I had some free time Saturday morning, some quiet time Saturday morning. Um, and here's what, uh, yeah, here you go. This is um, in the Obamacare legislation. Um, by nationalizing the student debt industry, which previously federal grants for private banks. This is kind of a synopsis of what the uh, Obamacare legislation did to student debt. Obamacare would raise $58 billion in revenue over a decade. So they made promises that the, the student, I mean, the, the legislation that was Obamacare, and guys, this is what you can do when nobody holds you accountable. I mean, when the media becomes a propaganda arm of the American political left, um, you end up just completely fundamentally dishonest with the American people, and nobody calls it into into account. Um, what are these bully ads? Okay, by nationalizing the student debt industry, which previously had federal guarantees for private banks, Obamacare would raise $58 billion in revenue over a decade. Some Democrats promised even more. Part of the Health Care and Education Affordability Reconciliation Act of 2010 will make key changes to the student loan industry. That's what Joe's talked about. The um, the Health Care and Education Affordability Reconciliation Act of 2010 would make key changes to the student loan industry. This measure will save. I mean, imagine this. How do you fix your mouth to say this in 2010? This measure will save taxpayers nearly $70 billion over the next 10 years. So to all the other ways in which the student loan bailout is objectionable, here's another one. It is yet another abandonment of the lies that used to sell Obamacare of all the bogus claims that it would pay for itself. Um, so Obamacare is not only obliterated what I call health care markets in America, it's socialized health care in America, um, it transferred the cost. Here we go again, transferring the cost of those who were young and healthy to those who are older and unhealthy. Um, I mean, that's in essence what Obamacare did. I mean, it forced young, healthy people to pay too much for health insurance because older, unhealthy people couldn't pay uh, couldn't pay the premium. If the health insurance company had to apply risk to what an older, unhealthy person is, that they couldn't get insurance, they couldn't afford insurance. So the the younger, healthier people, I mean, insurance company Obamacare force, and I'm gonna cover for the insurance companies for just a second. I mean, it's hard to do that, hard to defend what they've done because they played games with politics better than anybody probably ever has, or as well as anybody ever has. But the insurance companies were asked to assume a liability. A 65-year-old man with diabetes. I mean, that's not insurance. That's assuming a liability. So the insurance companies had to make that up somewhere. I mean, if you're if you're going to insure with, with and you can't have pre-existing conditions, remember, we did away with pre-existing conditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, in normal times, I'll insure you, but I'm not insure that diabetes. I mean, I'll insure you against certain things, but I can't insure you against diabetes, dude, because you're already diabetic. But Obamacare said you can't exclude him from any coverage so the only way to pay for that because i mean if you're going to ask an insurance company to assume that liability once again that's not providing insurance 
I mean, I think anybody would admit that, no matter how much egregious or how egregious you think the insurance companies are, nobody would expect an insurance company to write a policy for someone in that bad of health. I mean, that's a dead loser. You know that policy is going to cost you a lot of money unless you charge them, you know, $5,000 a month in premium, and you're probably still going to lose money. So, so Obamacare basically shifted that burden, transferred that burden to young, healthy people. Young, healthy people said, I don't want to pay $300 a month for insurance because I'm nothing's wrong with me, and, and the odds are nothing will be wrong with me in, in a good while. Maybe I get some catastrophic insurance, you know, in case I get in a car wreck and break both my legs or something crazy like that, but I don't need routine health care. I'm young and healthy. At some point in time in my life, I'll probably I'll begin doing that. So the Obamacare legislation said, um, We'll make them do it. You know, we'll, we'll find individual mandates. And once again, that, that's going away now. And that's why insurance has gone up so much for what I'd call the um, the not so young and not so healthy, <laughs> but not unhealthy. You know, th- those who get in their 50s and 60s and expect to have some uh, medical issues and some health care related issues. But but not only did Obamacare reorganize the health care markets, th- there was some reconciliation language in here about student debt. And they swore that they were going to save the student debt industry some money. They were going to look after you, the American taxpayer. Well, I mean, the number in 2010 was about $700 billion. Today, it's a trillion dollars more. And I think Larry will agree with me here. Larry and I have a little bit of a disagreement. Nah, it ain't much of a disagreement. It's a debate. I mean, it's a debate on, um, I, I don't think we have a debate on whose fault it is. I mean, I've got, I've got three suspects. You ready? I think the, the leading suspect is the government for allowing the taxpayer to be on the hook. Once the government took on the responsibility to guarantee all the student debt, you allowed suspect number two to do anything he wanted to do, and that is increase tuition at whatever rate they choose. We've convinced people that they need a college degree to be successful in the modern economy. The government's going to backstop the debt. Who wouldn't go to college? Who would encourage their kid to go to college under those circumstances? The person I blame the least is the borrower. And I'm probably one that stands on this moral hazard, you know, pedestal more than anybody. You borrow the money, damn it, you need to pay it back. I'm not sure sure I believe that here. I mean, I'm really not because I think a lot of these kids were coerced. I think a lot, a lot of the families were misled into believing that this degree you get is coming. Uh, the, the money you spend, you'll find a job commiserate with the money you spend. And now nearly half is in default deferment or some delayed payment program. And you can say I'm beating this dead horse too much. I don't think we're beating it enough. I mean, I don't think we understand because once again, you got to put on your thinking cap a little bit here and you got to think about what we are doing, what we have done. You know what we've done to discourage universities from raising tuition at an even faster rate than they have the last 20 years? Nothing. Not a thing. In fact, the one thing we've done with the income-driven repayment modification is incentivize universities to raise tuition faster than they had before. I mean, that, in essence, that's what we've done because once again, the discretionary income number went from 15 to 5. The forgiveness went from 20 to 10. The, the 40K in Pell Grant, and, and, and Joe's right about the Pell Grants, under certain circumstances, they, 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 they got to be paid back. But I mean, there's some language in it about grades and behavior and all these other sorts of things. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, 40 grand for 250 K for a family making 250 K, um, the person making 40 didn't go to college gets nothing out of that. I mean, where's the notion of fairness there? 
I mean, they, they, it can't be. You, there's no way to get fair out of that. Now, we can argue colleges cost too much money. The government should have never done. But there's no reason somebody who didn't receive a service, didn't borrow any money, should honor the contract or be held accountable to the contract. And that's the point I make. And this is where I get some pushback. What's the difference in that in Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security? I mean, all those are shared programs. What's the difference in um, food stamps and any other entitlement program in American government? Um, PPP loans. Well, I mean, PPP loan. I mean, you entered a contract. But the PPP loan, I mean, it was set up front. It was a forgivable loan. Nobody assumed that, that these student debt loans were going to be forgiven or transferred from one, um, from one you know, line item or, or ledger on the balance sheet to another ledger. So I, mean, I, I just think this is the winning issue. And it surprises me that Republicans have not articulated an, a sound argument explainable in, in a couple of sound bites. Doesn't it be a 20-minute speech? I mean, people have gone, I don't know, man. I mean, you got me confused now. Um, but, but if people understand, once again, 5% of Americans knew that they were on the hook for 90% of all student debt. 95% of people walking the streets in America today had no idea that they were the guarantor for 90% of $1.7 trillion in student debt. Who wouldn't get bothered by that? I mean, who would not be, who allowed that to happen? I mean, why are Americans not outraged? Who allowed the federal government to make me the guarantor of a service I didn't receive and a contract I didn't sign? How can the government do that? Why does the, the average citizen not have the ability to litigate? against the federal government. You can't enter me to a contract like that. Now, now we can debate whether Congress can appropriate the money to forgive or not or transfer or not, but how can a president of the United States unilaterally enter me into an agreement, make me um, accountable for debt I didn't borrow and a service I didn't receive? And so few Republicans are saying these things. J.D. Vance is an aspiring senator. Blake Masters is an aspiring senator. I'm going to tell you why, folks, because the leadership in the Republican Party is so in bed with higher education, they can't say anything. It's the swamp. It's exactly what it is. How many, how many universities have lobbyists and consultants who go to Columbia, who go to Washington, who represent the university's best interest? It doesn't matter to me how swampy this may be. How can an executive, no matter how powerful the president of the United States is, unilaterally enter me into an agreement to be held accountable for money I didn't borrow? Somebody else signed a contract on that. That's why I think it's different. That's why I think it's unique. It's obviously unique to PPP, and I think those who compare to PPP just don't know what they're talking about. I mean, you're talking about, I mean, I understand the theory behind it, but the PPP plan was passed as a forgivable loan plan. The business was shut down. How do we keep the business owner from losing everything he has? We pay his employees to work at a business that we've agreed to shut down. I mean, you turn the, the, the business owner into a quasi-unemployment agent. I mean, I've said that over and over and over again. But, but somebody signed a contract. And who had the authority to make we, the American people, accountable for however much money, however many people borrowed to get however many agrees, degrees they decided to get from however many universities? That's absurd. And the Republicans need to pound that and say it loudly and clearly. And my good friend Robert Cahaley for Trafalgar says he's never seen a single issue move the meter like this. 
when the American people find out, once again, only 5% knew. I would imagine more know now. But when 50% of Americans realize, hey, did you know your government put you on the hook for $1.7 trillion of student debt? Can't be me. I didn't go to college. I never borrowed any money. No way. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Stop, man. Stop watching Fox News. Stop listening to those people on the radio. I mean, those guys are nuts. They'll convince you that the government does crazy things like that all the time. There's no way in this world that I, who never went to college, never borrowed any money, am responsible for any of that debt. Stop. I mean, even the government has some moral compass about it. They would never in a million years do that. Okay. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. My tailgates tend to be a little more political than most. I mean, it's not just the score of the next game, but the past game or how good the football team is going to be or the ACC and the SEC. Um, I tend to attract some politicos on the tailgate, I guess, from my political past and doing this show and whatnot. Um, the conversation Saturday before the game in Columbia what was a lot about ain't no way. I'll be real Southern for a second. You ready? Ain't no way Donald Trump can find a federal district judge that is going to grant him the special master um, and some of these, you know, the raid and the resulting inquiry and potential indictment. Um, damn if he didn't. <laughs> and, 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 You're surprised. and it really surprised a lot of my friends at my tailgate who are more interested in politics than most college football fans. Fox News Radio's Ryan Schmelz is with us in our nation's capital. Ryan, good morning. How are you? Oh, good morning. Thanks for having me on. It was a bit of a surprise. Um, to those who are supportive of the Trump administration, and maybe he runs again in 2024, that uh, was it Aline Cannon, I think, was a federal judge that granted, um, I mean, she, she did it yesterday, but granted former President Donald Trump's motion for a special master. It's not a win for the president, not a big win, but it does allow for a special master to review some of the documents seized from Mar-a-Lago. Is that a proper accounting? Right. So, so remember, keep in mind. So, Judge Judge Cannon was appointed by uh, by former President Trump, and and this is this is partially a legal victory for his team, especially since this is something they've been asking for uh, really since this case started to get underway. Now, there weren't there wasn't all victories for them. The judge did not immediately order the seized documents returned to the former president or suppress any of the evidence like he asked for. But you know, he is going to be getting the special master or third party. Um, and right now, the Justice Department had to stop reviewing the documents. So that's uh, potentially I, you could maybe maybe view as a victory for the Trump uh, legal team as well. So, Ron, who chooses the special master? So it looks like it's going to be the judge. And, and what we're going to see on Friday is that Trump's lawyers, as well as the Department of Justice, are going to be submitting uh, a list of proposed special master candidates. Now, we also... Uh, are not going to be ruling out the potential for uh, even uh, an appeal from the Department of Justice. That's certainly possible. But from what it looks like is that the special master will then, uh, after the judge selects it, uh, both sides will be able to give some type of feedback, maybe even appeal the decision if they they see that appropriate. And then uh, the special master reviews the documents. Is it fair to say that the special master's, I don't know, investigation would be centered around executive privileges for, for the former president? Uh, potentially, it looks like most of what the, the special master is going to be looking at based off what the judge's ruling was, we'll be looking at attorney client privilege, um, which has been a strong, uh, accusation made by, by the justice or made by, uh, former president Trump's team. 
And this could take how long? Oh, that's that's the million dollar question. <laughs> Because number one, we have to we have to get get a special master first. So we have that Friday deadline uh, that's going to be set. We are also, like I said before, are not ruling out the Department of Justice potentially um, appealing the decision uh, to appoint a special master. Then the judge will have to take feedback from each uh, each party if they uh, ultimately decide uh, to submit candidates they like, and then the judge will eventually appoint that said set special master, which we don't have a timeline for. And then after that, the judge will then, or that, that special master will then review the documents. And we're talking about hundreds and potentially thousands of documents this special master is going to review. So that could take a, a significant amount of time, too. And we're talking about all this as a uh, election is right around the corner. Ryan, is it fair to say, last question, is it fair to say that this was a bit of a surprise to people inside the Beltway? Uh, surprise, it, it's kind of hard to, to really gauge that. Um, you know, there's obviously going to be those who, who point to bias from the judge because it's a Trump appointee. Uh, you're going to have those who say this is a major victory and, and that this was, you know, based off the DOJ's case, this is always going to be appropriate. But it, it, it's, it's kind of hard to gauge because it really is just something that has not really been seen before. We haven't seen uh this much legal attention uh, on a former president who's also considering uh, a run for the office once again. So it, it's really hard to pinpoint how, where this is relatable to because it just is so so different from what we're used to. Welcome to the world of Trump and American politics. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Ryan. Appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you. You know, um, I read an article by Andy McCarthy late yesterday afternoon, and um, he made an interesting point. The Justice Department's insistent to the contrary about um, whether or not it's settled law that former presidents are, are powerless in asserting uh, executive privilege against the incumbent executive branch. Uh, that's kind of what we're, that's what we're dealing with here. I mean, it gets real weedy and complicated and I'm certainly not scholarly nor um, litigious enough to give a sound interpretation, but it seems to me that the justice department may have jumped the gun a bit. I sound like a Trumpster here, uh, a MAGA extremist, um, may have jumped the gun in convincing themselves that it was settled law, that former presidents are powerless to assert some of these executive privileges against an incumbent executive branch. But but Andy McCarthy brings up the DOJ's, um, this theory and, and where it stands in the court, and he says there's a precedent. I mean, Andy McCarthy's almost like, this, this, this fool won't go away. I mean, as bad as we'd like to, you know, just uh, exterminate him from the world of scene of American <laughs> politics, he's like the, I mean, he lived through the Ice Age. He lived through the volcano erupting. I mean, he's just, he's, um, he's Jason on Friday the 13th. I mean, nothing will rid of of this cancerous soul that is Donald Trump. But, but even McCarthy says that the DOJ theory may be wrong if you refer to a Brett Kavanaugh uh, majority opinion uh, in this Trump versus Thompson case. That is, um, I mean, that's kind of working itself through the court. But Kavanaugh said a former president must be able to successfully invoke the presidential communications privilege for communications that occurred during his presidency, even if the current president does not support the privilege claim. Concluding otherwise would eviscerate the executive privilege for presidential communications. I mean, that's kind of a, once again, I'm being as legal as I can. I'm, I'm being as much of a legally as I possibly can. But Andy McCarthy raised that issue, and um, it was an eight-to-one decision that, that 
permitted the January 6th committee, committee to gain access to these documents that Trump claimed privilege of. So uh, it's kind of weird because Trump, you just don't ever imagine he's going to catch a break in the, in the judicial system, right? I mean, why would you give the guy the benefit of the doubt when he wants to blow everything up that you've built? I mean, there's a judicial system in America that's been created uh, largely by judges and lawyers and legal minds and scholars and, and professors. And here's a guy that really and truly pays very little mind or has very little respect for this system that they've created. But he may thread the needle here. I mean, he really may thread the needle. Um, I read over the weekend that uh, three lawyers have confessed privately that the reason they didn't take Trump as a client is they didn't believe they could find work after that. I mean, they believe that their firm would have been blackballed by some of the Washington elite and establishment and some of the, in other words, the work that McConnell sends their way or the work that Schumer sends their way would not come their way if they took on Trump as a client. Now, once again, that's not the Wall Street Journal. That's kind of cocktail party talk. But, um, but yeah, this Trump versus Thompson case, and it's almost like Andy McCarthy had to be made to put that in the article. Because McCarthy is real fatigued of Trump. I mean, I told you, Rev, he's been fair to Trump. He's not been, I mean, he's been critical when criticism is warranted. He's been a little bit fair-minded when that seems to be uh, the tactic or strategy. But even McCarthy's like, we're, we're never going to get rid of this guy. I mean, he, he's never going away. Um, and, and he may be right. I mean, we may have him again count him out. to deal with in 2024. Let's go to the phone. Here is Bert in Florence. Hello, Bert. I'm going to have to pull back some of my sponsorship. That, that sports <laughs> went on forever. Yeah, but you look at, the, look at the dollar for value yeah. you got, man. I mean, you got like 26 <laughs> minutes and you only pay for about 12 or 13. <laughs> yeah, you can't beat that. <laughs> no. Um, you know, I, I, I like the way you put that whole, um, you know, they're, they're supposed to promote the general welfare, not provide for the general welfare. I really like that. Because uh, that's exactly what we're seeing. It's always providing. I mean, I talk to people on the left all the time, and they just think that that's free money. They don't see it as, you know, ultimately we're paying that. They just think if, if government pays for it, that's free money. You know, why not take that? That should be for everybody. We should just have literally they think all your bills and all your medical, everything should just be paid, and you should be allowed to go be an artist or something, you know, be a – Hunter Biden artist worth nothing, you know. Uh, so I'm offended by every one of those programs. Every welfare program that exists ultimately comes back to more taxes that we're paying. I'm offended by all of it. And none of it, as far as I can tell, is allowed in the Constitution. I mean, not only in our country, but how much money are we sending to other countries that you want, my opinion, ends up in the pockets of politicians anyway. So, you know, it's always, they say X amount, but it ends up being Y amount, and that's filtered off into people's pockets along the way. My dad used to describe it really like you'd say you send a truckload of, of crates of food to some little country, and every stop along the way, somebody pulls off a crate for their cut. So by the time it gets there, it's really nothing. I would like to see all of it done away with. Thank you, Bert. Appreciate that. With well, the letter of the language, I mean, if you if you interpret the letter of the language in uh, the bill, and it's not really a bill, it's an executive order. Uh, if it were a bill, it'd been through committee and, or subcommittee and committee, and 
the, the floor would have voted on it. They'd had a you know vigorous debate about the goods and bads, the pros and cons. But um, but the letter of the bill, the clear winner is college. I mean, colleges win because they they you know now I mean the, the, you know the the colleges have already gotten the money, but they, they were always a little bit concerned about how much we can raise tuition because once people find out they're on the hook for this student debt that there may be somewhat of a revolt. People may say, I don't want to do that. I mean, you know, that doesn't make any sense to me. Now, one political party needs to stand tall here and say we're remodeling the way we fund higher education. Uh, that, that's got to happen. Now, now, you know, if you want to go down the road of um, politics and, and, and the political forces here, I've told you the polls that show college-educated voters under the age of 30 are almost as monolithic of that as African-Americans. I mean, it's it's not quite ninety percent in support of Democrats. I mean, it's not quite ninety percent. So something is happening mm-hmm. on college campuses that isn't happening on tech campuses, or in the Marines, or Army, or air, or, you know, on the farm at the construction site, you know, under the house with the plumber. I mean, it, a lot of things are. I mean, when you look at that universe of, of under thirty year old voter, they're voting traditionally like most Americans have. Uh, you know, 51, 49, 57, 43, whatever state you are in, and whatever. Uh, political proclivities seem to be um, most at play in that said state. But but when you look at voters under the age of 30 that have gone and graduated from college, they're pretty monolithic in support of the Democrat and liberal policies. So when you look at the letter of the law, it's it favors the college. But here's the problem. If I'm working at a, at a university or institution of higher learning, I'm deeply concerned I like it when only 5% of Americans knew that they were the guarantor in this student debt scheme. And that's what it is, guys. Let's be honest. I mean, it's a scheme. Scheme, scam. I mean, the way we fund higher education is a scam. The way we hide it from the American people is a scheme. I mean, I asked Rev a second ago, and I said, could you believe? And he was like, no, that's unbelievable. But then you start thinking about it. How many Americans really and truly understand the model of which the funding of higher education is predicated upon. How many How many of you, I mean, seriously now, how many of you knew before Joe Biden agreed? Well, I mean, I, I want to take a little credit here. How many of you knew before you started listening to this show? Because I beat that drum for six or eight years. Even if you've been through the system and done the FAFSA and gone to studentaid.gov, well, I mean, you really didn't know where the money a, comes from. A lot from. of Americans have done that, and you don't know where the money, I mean, do you really know where the money comes from? I mean, you kind of sort of think it comes from some lending institution. I mean, I'm signing an agreement, and and the government's going to, I guess, send that university the money. I mean, do you ever see the money? That's an interesting question. You know, we tried to really walk through the logistics of the system. Um, Here's here's what the, the, the silence of higher education is louder than anything they could say. I've not heard a single college president or a single faculty or administrative agent within a university say a whisper. They're, they're trying to hunker down and wait it out. 5% of Americans knew that the American people were guaranteeing $1.7 trillion of student debt. I have beat that drum for six or seven years because I felt I had a little bit of understanding of what was heading our way. I mean, I, you know, several years ago, I remember over the air saying, you know, a bailout's coming. I mean, it's inevitable. Who doesn't believe that eventually the American taxpayer will be held liable for this egregious amount of money? Um, and at that point, it was probably not even a trillion dollars. Well, six, seven hundred billion dollars, maybe seven or eight hundred billion dollars. 
Um, when we started the show, it might have been 650, 60, 70 billion. Because I can remember one day saying over the air and telling you, this thing will be a trillion bucks before you know it. I mean, it's about $80 billion a year. I mean, that's in 10 years, that's 800 billion bucks. Uh, and we're doing nothing to address the fundamental flaw of the model. That's the problem here, Reb. And, um, and, and I guess here's the, you know, for those just joining us, Robert Cahaley told me over the weekend that he has never seen a single issue move the numbers like student debt has since Joe Biden announced this transfer plan. Because it's not a forgiveness. None of the debt's being forgiven. It's simply being transferred from one line uh, on the ballot sheet or ledger to another. And, um, and Robert said that 30 House seats that it looked like were fairly safe to, rep- excuse me, the Democrats are now in play. Now, now, Robert gets excited. I mean, he's a Republican. He's a true-believing Republican. But he tries to check that at the door and not allow it to affect his polling. And we'll find out if it does or not. And he said, I actually wrote the number down, um, four Senate seats are back in play that he didn't think was in or were in play. Now, he's always believed that Nevada is in play. He's always believed that Arizona, Ohio, Georgia, Pennsylvania, no matter what the national media and some of the CNN polling and the, you know, even the Fox News polling. I mean, Robert said the new pollster they have, I mean, he's getting paid a lot of money to make it look a certain way. I mean, everybody wants rid of Trump. Everybody but you, you know, the Republican primary voter, the majority of people want Trump gone. So anything to discourage. And I think I explained it last week a little bit about the summertime polling and what the intent of that is to discourage donors. I mean, if Blake Masters, if you believe Blake Masters is 11 down in Arizona, why would you send him a check for a thousand bucks? I mean, if there's a hundred thousand people in, in America that would send Blake Masters a thousand bucks if they thought he had a chance to win, because that's critical to who runs or who has majority of the Senate, but he's 11 down. Why wouldn't you send that money? Why wouldn't you send it if you got three grand and you want to send a thousand to J.D. Vance, a thousand Herschel Walker, and a thousand to Blake Masters? Why would you? Why would you send 15 to J.D. and 15 to Herschel? Because it looks like they may be able to win. I mean that that's always been the intent of some of these polls to suppress excitement, enthusiasm, and to discourage donations from being made and it looks to me like masters and oz were the two they can marginalize most effective hard to marginalize herschel walker in georgia you may do it all over the country but i mean he's a football hero and and a treasure of georgia it's hard to say herschel sucks to the voters of georgia he may or may not win but you're going to have a hard time marginalizing him in a state that loves and adores him for his football accomplishments and really and truly, Rev, his likability, relatability, and authenticity. I mean, when you hear Herschel talk, you don't think you're hearing a Harvard professor, but you hear some sincerity and authenticity in, in what he says. I mean, he sounds like a football player running for office. That's what he sounds like. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Hello, Mike. I tell you, I couldn't say it any better than that, uh, Ken. Uh, I think I think you're right on the money. I could. It's hard to say anything uh, better than what you've said about education. It is a scam and a scheme the whole time. And I I'm waiting to see, and I'm hoping that people wake up to this uh, 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 environment. Ecology thing is a is a huge scam. It's a huge master scam. It's made a lot of. Uh, elites uh increasingly wealthy and is going to put uh our entire country at risk and uh destabilize the world uh 
actually, uh, it's, it's, uh, I didn't mean to use that uh, word actually. It, uh, I hate that word, but, uh, in a way, but, uh, the, the whole thing about the education scam is it sounds so nice. We're going to educate people. You're going to get a better job and everything, but, um, and then, and then at the same time, but we're going to raise the price of education to make it a little bit more expensive. But don't worry, you can borrow the money and be indentured to us for decades, paying it back. And uh, at one point, weren't they actually collecting it out of the Social Security of uh, people that had uh, signed on for some of the early uh, student loans? Uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong on that, but I think they uh, actually did that in some cases. Mm-hmm. They did. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate the call. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is the number. I got real. I have gotten long winded in the first segment of every hour. Got to do better, right, Frio? <laughs> got to do better. No, I like it. Okay, take a break. <laughs> Back in a minute. It's kind of interesting to see what some of the state constitutions do. We talked a little bit about the federal constitution. And the fact that it is to promote the general welfare, not provide for. When you look at some of the articles in the New York State Constitution, uh, believe it or not, the North Dakota Constitution, Alaska, Hawaii, um, it's kind of interesting to um, to find out what they included um, as, I don't know, Rev, uh, positive rights in welfare and health and education, the right to work. Um Article 17 of the New York State Constitution states, and I'll quote it exact, the aid, care, and support of the needy or public concerns and shall be provided by the state in such manner and by such means. So if you're needy, the New York Constitution says it is their job to not promote ideas but pro- or promote, um, you know, amendments or not, remedies. Remedies is the word I'm looking for, but rather to provide the Constitution of North Dakota um looks at education in that way, says that the legislative assembly shall provide for a uniform system of free public schools throughout the state. Alaska Constitution um, addresses public health of state inhabitants. Hawaii's uh, says that the state shall provide for the protection and promotion of the public health. So some of these state constitutions are, um, I mean, you know, federalism. I mean, that's kind of what the experiment of self-governance is about. The federal government has limited abilities, limited responsibilities, limited control, and the states have autonomy and authority to be the laboratories for what works and what does not. Let's go to the phone. Sam in Darlington. Good morning, Sam. Uh, good morning, fellas. Really enjoying the show this morning. And, uh, Ken, I'm glad you, you brought this uh, issue about the uh, percent of disposable income kind of out in the sunshine. And uh, I really wasn't aware of, of that. Uh, I, uh, um, until really this this became a whole issue, and I knew that in, in all of this, I found out that it well it started out at ten percent of disposable income, and then this law uh, reduced it to to five percent. I believe if I understand it correctly. Correct. But my, yep. my, but, but but my question, since you've done the research, is um, how does one measure disposable income? How is that reported to whoever the bodies are that oversee this? this program and who who audits it and so i don't know if you came across that I, i'm not familiar with any type of reporting annual reporting or whatever that has to be done there so uh if you know anything about that i appreciate you sharing it with me thank and you thing too, i'm sorry continue one other, thing, one, other, one other thing too uh i i agree with you the republicans really need to get out 
front now and really start talking about all these things. Um, uh, I've often heard that there are three types of people. There are people that watch things happen, make things happen, and wonder what happens. And I'm afraid if they don't get active, they're gonna we're gonna watch things happen over the next couple of weeks, and then they're gonna wonder what happened. But we'll know what happened. So anyway, um, uh, yeah, this, this 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 the devil's in the details. And so uh, I appreciate you coming out uh, with this topic today, and enjoy the show. Thank you. I don't know where the audit reports are. I mean, I've looked long and hard. I've Googled as best I know how to Google. I can't find any of the audit reports. I'm not sure I could read them if I did get my hands on it, but I got some accountant friends of mine, some financially minded people that I think would agree to help me. The language says disposable income. Discretionary income is what they call it. Um, Discretionary income, disposable income. But um, that number's always been 10% and it went to 5%. The loan forgiveness was 20%. That goes to 10%. Um, But but there's a lot of, uh, I'll tell you what they did to me now. I mean, this is personally... From my interpretation of reading the, the original draft and then this uh, this modified version that is most recent, when it comes to income-driven repayment, there was some ambiguity there. What does it really mean? It's pretty clear now. I mean, th- this is a direct, you know, what they're calling a forgiveness. I call a transfer. Um, it's fairly aggressive. I mean, it's a fairly aggressive move toward uh, an income-driven model that stands on its own. In other words, Rev could read some of the language in the previous, you know, t- what, what does this mean? Is Well, it kind of means that, and it kind of means this, and you need to do that, and you need to try to do this. This clarifies a lot of that. I mean, this streamlines a lot of the language, and um, and don't take my word, the UPenn School of Business, excuse me, the Wharton School of Finance at UPenn, um, I got to believe that they want to run cover for higher education if they could. They're arguing that the, the $300 billion that the Biden administration announced the media ran with is simply the 10,000 forgiveness, the Pell Grants. You know, in Joe Dry, a grant is forgiven under certain circumstances. I think Pell Grants are a little bit different from what I've read than a just a normal grant. There, there's some clawbacks. There are some provisions in there. you got to meet and exceed. If you don't, then the money has to be, it turns into a, um, it turns into a loan. And I guess a certain percentage of those, they didn't do what they were supposed to do. They didn't uh, meet whatever criteria they were supposed to meet. And the grant did turn into a loan. Um, but I think it's pretty clear that the th- the $300 billion that it's going to cost you, the taxpayer, was based on a $40,000 forgiveness for the number of people making less than $250,000 a year, fi- filing, jo- filing jointly and making less than two fifty. That number equaled about $300 billion. That, that is exclusive of the income-driven repayment side of this, which I think is pretty clear. Now, once again, to Sam's point, I don't know who audits. I mean, I did. I looked. I tried to find, okay, who says that Dave Baker has 16% of um of disposable income and not 10? You know, it's just a little bit like um the, the, the mortgage is not supposed to exceed, you know, 18% of your take-home or net pay or whatever. You've, you've heard some of these rules of thumbs. Uh, applied to whatever financial situation you may find yourself in. But but the Wharton School of Finance did a pretty good analysis. My word, not theirs. They called it determinate um, for whatever reason. But uh, it's an analysis, and, and they're arguing that if the Biden income-driven repayment stands, it will forgive about $1.2 trillion of the $1.7 trillion in student debt in about 10 years. It'll not all be forgiven today. 
but you'll make a very minimal payment. Uh, their words are in, in the School of Finance, in the Wharton School of Finance, it says a, um, a trivial payment. 5% of discretionary income, if you're making 50 grand, if you're making 100 grand, it's different sorts of numbers for different sorts of people. But, but once all of that is tallied, and once again, I've got no idea, Sam, who says that Dave Baker has this much uh, or this much percentage of discretionary income or not. I couldn't find that. I mean, I looked long and hard because that was a question I had. Okay, who gets to decide? You know, I'm saying I got, uh, I mean, if I, if I don't want to pay it back, I'm saying I only got 3%. But if they're trying to make me pay it back, they say I got 10 or 12%. But, but if, you, if you use the Wharton School of Finance and their model and, and their expose, so to speak, it ends up at about $1.2 trillion. That means all of but $500 billion in student debt is going to be forgiven over the long haul. They just figured out a different way to do it. It would probably freak we the people out if they came out and said, you know, we got $1.7 trillion in student debt. We're going to give forgive $1.2 trillion of that debt. Whoa, $300 billion is bad enough. Certainly you can't do $1.2 trillion. I mean, it is a, it is a $1.2 trillion trillion dollar loan transfer student loan transfer bill that that never was debated was never legislated the president of the united states unilaterally said to the american public i can do this and the only people that i've not heard from that i'd love to hear from is the administrators of higher education who are the voices who are the leading voices of higher ed in saying that we can defend this, I mean, here's why we believe it makes sense. Uh, is it to promote the general welfare of the country? I mean, to me, it's providing for the general welfare of the country. Um, I'll make a deal. I mean, you know, let's look behind door number three here for just a second. I mean, I'm willing to give $1.7 trillion. I'm willing to take it on the chin. I mean, I, I think it's against everything I've ever believed philosophically. I think it's bad for the country. I think it's a terrible precedent to set. I think it gets into moral hazard and, you know, I mean, the, the lack of individuality and responsibility and accountability. I think it, it really reflects everything bad about America. I mean, I think America is founded on certain principles. These violate about every principle they were founded on. But it's complicated, and we've allowed it to get extremely complicated. So in the name of complication and saving another $5 trillion, Let's abolish the government guaranteeing any student debt. Let's force higher education to market correct and not insulate itself from realities of a market of education. And let's turn, um, instead of 20 million kids going to college every year, we'll have about 13, 14, 15 million going every year. We'll have some empty door rooms. Uh, we'll probably deconstruct some climbing walls and swimming pools and, and saunas and spas and dorms. Um, that entice, you know, kids or elite kids to go to prestigious universities. I mean, it will have a dire effect. I mean, it will have an absolutely dire effect on higher education. I mean, you'll have dorm rooms empty. You'll have professors and administrators looking for new jobs. Welcome to the free market. Welcome to the real world. And I think for the, the only way this, this, um, this false economy is allowed to exist is false realities. And I think if we implement market forces in a place that has done, an, and let's give them credit. I mean, they've done an amazing job of insulating themselves from any reality of market force. So if we allow the educational system in America, K through 12 and higher ed, I mean, I, I do this in both. Now, now it's a little bit different K through 12 because we fund that. 
You know, there, there's not a contract. Dave Baker's son didn't sign a contract to go to K through 12, borrow X number of dollars to go. No, I mean, that, that's where this gets real, real, real confusing. And that's why philosophically it violates everything we stand for, everything we should be um, in defense of, liberties and freedoms and accountability, personal responsibility. But, but in the name of, of being a pragmatist, I mean, I can be real pragmatic. Let's forgive the 1.7 in student debt in exchange for the government signing a release today saying we'll never put the taxpayer on the hook for another dollar borrowed for a kid to go to a college, whether it's in Hawaii, Alaska, Indiana, South Carolina, Florida, the market force will dictate how many kids go to college. Take a break. Back in a minute. You know, the, the one thing that frustrates me about the Republicans, when you look at the, the percentage of higher education contributions made to political parties or campaigns, about 70% of all political donations from the higher education industry um, since 2002, for the last 20 years, about 70% has gone to the Democrats. Um, if I'm not mistaken, Joe Biden, somebody can check this if I'm wrong or right, but I think Biden received about $65 million from individuals, entities, and enterprises lobbying interests associated with higher education during the 2020 presidential election. So why wouldn't the Republicans go after that? I mean, I, I just don't understand that. I mean, you know, if you believe that the colleges are creating liberal voters, I mean, obviously there's a reason to be politically motivated, but also, you know, a 70% of all the contributions made by the business or industry of higher education have gone to Democrats and Biden got $65 million. Somebody check that. I mean, I, I think I'm right. It's somewhere in the neighborhood of $65 million uh, from the higher education or individuals in higher education. I mean, we've talked about the number. It would be an interesting debate to have. Um, Dr. Bolt couldn't come today because he had some vehicle trouble um, over the weekend trying to get some things straight. Anyway, text me last night, emailed me last night, said he couldn't make it this morning. Um, What's more liberal, the faculty lounges of the top 200 universities in America or the newsrooms of the five or six or seven leading media organizations in America today? Seriously, I mean, if you, if you do a random sampling of the, the top 200 universities in America, I mean, Carolina Clemson would be in that. They wouldn't be in the top 50, may not be in the top 100. I think they probably would, uh, depending on how you rate it and how you scale it and all these good stuff. I've seen rankings here, there, and yonder. But, I mean, we know that Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Dartmouth and Stanford and Vanderbilt and, and Duke, we know they'd be in it, right? I mean, we, we know the prestigious mm-hmm. brands out there. Um, it's a little bit like, I mean, Peter Thiel says that the exclusivity of education, you know, some of these, um, if Harvard and Princeton and Yale and Stanford do it better than anybody in America, why don't we let them do it to a lot of kids? I mean, if, they, if they're truly a world-class learning institution, then, then why is it so exclusive? You, you see where I'm headed? That just makes too much sense, well, that's why. Yeah, I mean, why wouldn't we take the best professor right. at Harvard or Yale or Stanford and allow them to do classes online? And duplicate that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. cost-efficient. Well, I mean, you, there's not enough money to be made if you do it that way. <laughs> Exclusivity. I mean, Peter Thiel says it's like Studio 51 back in the day. <laughs> you know, nobody 54. can get in because everybody wants to get in. And once you get in, you realize, okay, ain't much here. But I mean, I'm in, you know, I'm in with the, with the in crowd, so to speak. And um, yeah, that, that, that element of exclusivity has been created. But, but so if, I mean, I understand, I mean, I was in Columbia and, and the universities have lobbyists. I mean, the universities have people that represent their interest. I'm not opposed to that. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not opposed to that. I'm go to bat for your school. 
Um, you got some Clemson graduates, Carolina graduates, Coastal graduates, some Francis Marion graduates um, in the in the state house. Uh, but at the federal level, the, the state has done nothing like this. I mean, at the state level, it, it's it's about lottery money and funding of education and how much money got left over after some of some of the pension and health care and you know the Medicaid match. I mean, that's a big albatross on the around the neck of state governments. But when the federal government agreed to guarantee student debt, I mean, that's the day this was off to the races. I mean, that, that's the day that this was inevitable. And I want to be clear. I don't think the people running universities are immoral or unethical. I mean, you gave them a license to do something. It's not their fault. I mean, how many college presidents voted on the bill? Okay, maybe they advocated. Maybe they're very articulate. Maybe they understand how important college is. I mean, if I were a college president, you couldn't convince me that college wasn't the most important thing in America today. But if I were a coal miner, you convinced me that coal mining wasn't the most poor. I mean, we all have these self-preservationist interests. I mean, you do. I do. Everybody does. I just think it's interesting that higher education has had very little to say over the last couple of weeks. The silence is the loudest noise in the room as far as I'm concerned. Hey, let's take a break. We'll be back on the other side for our last hour of this Takes Tuesdays to make Friday's edition. You know, there's some Republicans and Democrats, for that matter, that believe civility is the best way. You know, the, the two-party system, the duopoly that has historically governed the country's affairs can come to grips with some of its disagreements and pragmatically and, and responsibly agree to disagree and work toward a common solution. And then there are others in the party, and I think this is a grower, a growing element within each political party that says, I'll fight fire with fire. A tooth for an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth, and and that kind of mindset. Chicago is um kind of in the news as the Texas governor is sending migrant buses to Chicago. I think in a while, for a while, he sent them to New York. Jeff Manasso is with Fox News Radio. He's in Chicago. Um, Jeff, what does Chicago make of the governor of Texas sending these migrant buses to uh, to her city? Well, it's, it's twofold because, you know, on one hand, Mayor Lori Lightfoot has said we are a welcoming city. We're a sanctuary city. This is our values. This is, this is what we believe in. But at the same time, you've got now uh, a group of about 50 migrants that arrived in Chicago Sunday via charter buses from Texas on top of the about 75 migrants who arrived in Chicago via charter buses from Texas last week. And now the mayor is, is, is reaching out to both uh, state and, and federal officials and asking for help. Uh, resources, uh, money, uh, you know, any type of resources uh, that, that can come Chicago's way to be able to deal with this influx of, of migrants that are being sent in from, uh, from Texas because uh, the, the city doesn't have the resources, according to uh, Mayor Lightfoot. So Chicago is the latest so-called sanctuary city, including New York and D.C., that Texas Governor Greg Abbott is sending migrants as Texas has become over, overwhelmed. Uh, with what Abbott calls President Biden's inaction at our southern border. Policies that he says continues putting the lives of Texans and Americans at risk. Abbott also saying that Mayor Lightfoot loves to tout the responsibility of her city uh, you know, to welcome all, regardless of legal status, and that he looks forward to seeing this responsibility in action as these migrants receive the resources from a sanctuary city with the capability or capacity to, to serve them. He says the border communities no longer have the resources. Uh, Lightfoot has also been blasting Abbott, calling him racist and, and unpatriotic, um, that uh, Abbott professes to be a Christian, but that this is not the Christianity 
and the teachings of the Bible that, that she knows. Avatov is responding yesterday to Fox News and saying that attacking the governor's commitment to his faith is a pathetic political ploy to change the conversation away from Mayor Lightfoot's unwillingness to uphold her city's self-declared sanctuary status. So I think this is fighting fire with fire, as you mentioned. Jeff, do we expect these to continue? I mean, is this for a, yeah. I mean, an extended period of time? Yeah, we do. Uh, as long as as long as the the policies are in place that allow uh, illegal immigrants to come across the border and freely into the interior, uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott has said this is going to happen. It's not just going to it's not just going to be Chicago, or New York, and uh, uh, D.C. It's going to be other cities. And as you already know, D.C. and New York uh, have been begging uh, for federal resources. Uh, D.C. even even asking, seeking a couple of times, uh, requesting the National Guard for help. Of course, the, the Biden administration turned. Uh, uh, DC down on on that, but um, yeah, it's gonna it's gonna continue to happen, uh, according to Greg Abbott. Welcome to modern day politics in America. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate your time. You bet. That's kind of an interesting take. A story off the beaten path there a bit. Um, I would send buses. I'd send electric buses, diesel buses, gasoline buses, solar powered buses, wind powered buses with migrants to these sanctuary cities until I filled up every homeless shelter, every whatever. I mean, the YMCAs, I would just inundate these these cities that have basically, um, I mean, they, you know, the reason they're sanctuary cities is they don't, I mean, they refuse to enforce some of the federal law. So, I mean, if they refuse to enforce the federal law and the government, you know, the, the federal level refuses to then dump them in these sanctuary cities and let them deal with it the mm-hmm. best way they know how there's a humanity component here but but it's not texas's problem and texas is a border state uh illinois is not uh washington dc obviously is not new york is not but export the problem i mean if you if you're inundated or overwhelmed to the point of not being able to provide if you don't have the infrastructure able to accommodate this many people but i'm going to bus and send them somewhere that do especially in light of the situation it is the government's the federal government's responsibility to deal with this and they're not doing they're it. just simply not doing it so just you know put them on a bus and send them somewhere uh, of um of like-minded leadership i want to go back real quick um you and i were talking during the break i don't see anything to lose um i'm not saying attack anybody but but i don't understand the republicans hesitancy in making this student debt issue the central theme of the campaign. And you haven't heard much about it. Some Republicans have tweeted, you know, this is a terrible thing and it's uh, you know, a transfer, whatever. But there's not a lot of, you know, deeper chatter. And there's the no issue. intensity here. I mean, it, there's not an intent to, to run a national. Well, I mean, maybe there is and I don't know about it. Um, but I went back and looked during the break because um, I thought the number was right. $64.5 million is what higher education gave to Joe Biden and about 72%. I said 70, about 72% of all money donated uh, to political campaigns from higher education was given to Democrats. That's pretty overwhelming. I mean, that's, you know, between 70 and 75%, $65 million, 97.5% of all people who work in higher education contributed to Democrats, about 2% to Republicans and about one half percent to green and, you know, libertarian candidates and some of these you know, fringe candidates are minor candidates. It'd be third and fourth tier uh, campaigns and candidates. But I went and pulled um, some of the leading suspects. And it doesn't surprise me here. Um, the University of California system, not UCAL, just UCAL Berkeley, but the University of California system, big university system. I mean, they contributed $4.783 million to candidates and parties and outside spending groups. Um, 
and 90, 96.4% of Democrats, 2.5% to Republicans. So nearly $5 million given by the University of California higher education system. And I mean, that's, that's pretty wild. Um, Elizabeth Cheney, excuse me, um, uh, Liz Warren, Elizabeth Warren, uh, Anthony Warnock, uh, Mark Kelly, some of the Democrats in hotly contested races. And these, um, I mean, the UK, I mean, imagine this, guys. Why would, I mean, I, this makes me furious. Why would the University of California send millions of dollars or a million dollars in, in support of Elizabeth Warren? Because she's been the biggest advocate for canceling student debt, for transferring student debt. Stanford University, $1.89 million. They gave $1.385 million to candidates, 499000 to outside spending groups, 96.8% Democrat, 2.6% Republicans. Um, Harvard University, $1,007,495, uh, 905,000 candidates and parties, 8 point, uh, excuse me, 102,000 outside groups, um, 91.1% to Democrats, 8.4% to Republicans. Um, I need to do this. Here's what I need to do. You ready? You want to play a little chess? Uh, at 9.15 on a Tuesday morning. Let's hear it. Here's the chess game. I need to look through all this data. 2.5% of Republicans, 2.6% of Republicans, 5.9% of Republicans. New York University Medical School, they're proud, 0% to Republicans, and they gave $825,000. Yale, 91.4 to Democrats, 7.9 to Republicans. I need to know who's getting the money on the Republican side of the debate. I mean, it's obvious the overwhelming majority. I mean, in excess of 90% is going to Democrats. I want to know who in the Republican Party is getting paid by higher education to make sure we don't have this most important conversation. I got to believe it's leadership. I mean, if you're a rank-and-file member, you can yell and scream and might get on Fox News or, or Hannity's show, but you're not going to chair a committee. I mean, if you're rambunctious and kind of a, you know, uh, a hellion, so to speak, I mean, you'll be deemed to the back row and you'll be, you know, one of these fringe candidates. I mean, not only will the Democrats attack you, your own party will as well. So when I look at 2.5%, 2.6%, I mean, it's obvious who's getting the Democrat contributions, everybody. Warnock got a lot of money because he's in a hotly contested race in Georgia. They need him to win because he's for canceling student debt. Elizabeth Warren in, in a... And Massachusetts has been probably the, I mean, the loudest voice in canceling student debt. Bernie Sanders in Vermont receives a lot of money from higher education. That stands to reason because they want to make public education, I mean, they want to make it free. That means the government's on the hook for everything. Well, I mean, if the government's on the hook for 90% and we got $1.7 trillion in student debt, just imagine if higher education were completely subsidized by we the people. I mean, imagine what a college degree would cost. Stick with me for a second. Imagine what a college degree would cost if there were no um, mediator, an intermediary, if there were no go-between, a middleman, so to speak. In other words, the government said, hey, you know, we're, we're going to pay for it. Charge what you got. I mean, charge what you have to. You, you see where I'm headed? But, but here's the point we got to figure out. Where did the contributions made to Republicans go? Where did some of the focus groups, these outside spending groups, uh, 460,000, 499,000, 594,000, 182,000, 478,000, 214,000, um, 635, 
thousand, one hundred eighty-five thousand, two hundred fourteen. You see where I'm? I mean, what what sorts of motivations were behind mm-hmm. those contributions and those interest groups or spending groups? Um, was it to advance or you know? I mean, a, a Republican here. Here's how it probably goes. You ready? I'm gonna take inside the belly of the beast about as much as I can. So the Democrat, the University of California, comes to see Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell says, hey, I can't be for canceling student debt. We get that, Mitch. We understand that. We're not here to ask you to be in favor of canceling student debt. We know you're a Republican from Kentucky, but we don't want a bill to stop the funding or the the guaranteeing of student debt. We don't want that bill to see the light of day. I mean, one one of your back row Republicans, one of these Trumpsters, those son of a guns will introduce a bill now. I mean, you know, you, you take, I mean, that, that if that Blake Masters guy gets elected or J.D. Vance gets elected or Dr. Oz or that football player from Georgia, I mean, if any of those guys get elected, they're not beholden. I mean, this is kind of the new right. You run this place, Mitch, and we're counting on you to make sure we understand that you can't be with Elizabeth Warren. You can't be with Bernie. We've already talked to them. We got them taken care of. I mean, they're 100% on board canceling student debt. We need your word. Before we give you this money and have this fundraiser, we need your word that if one of your fellow Republican senators try and introduce a bill, it will not see the light of day, whether you're a minority leader or the majority leader. Because as long as the Democrats are in the majority, we got nothing to worry about. But one of these days, you guys will be in charge. We're betting on you, Mitch. We're counting. I'll bet you a... Dollar you to think a, that's how that works? That's exactly how it works. The 2.5% of contributions made by the University of California to Republican candidates is in the name of making sure some of these bills to change the model don't see the light of day because, Mitch, you like the deal. We like the deal. It might not be good for the American people, but only 5% of them know about it anyway. You like your deal. We like our deal. This contribution is to keep the deal like the deal is. Let's go to the phone. Here is David in the PD. Hello, David. Hey, good morning, Ken. Good memories, man. You were talking about, I think your first game was 1972. 1972 in November they played. Florida State, they won, and my mom carried a blanket. I got no idea why I remember mom. I don't think anybody in my family was as jacked up as I was. I mean, I'm sure of that, well, but but well, man, my mom I, I, had a blanket. I don't remember who we played, but I know my first game, I was new to the concept of assigned seats. So once I got through that turnstile, I took off. And I just ran. We were in the north stands, and I ran up the, the steps and all this kind of stuff. My parents had to come and find me. But uh, I, I know back in the day now, we were playing on AstroTurf. And I call it the post-ACC, pre-SEC days. So that were some good old days back then. Um, and don't be discouraged now. The first game when we went back to natural grass was against Citadel back in 1984, and we won 31-24. to And I always give Citadel credit. They got some disciplined players now. So I give them credit. Now, here's my question for you. If Clowney's number seven's retired, what, what's Rattler's number? Hmm. Do they retire the I number mean, or the number jersey? Seven. Yeah, is, that, is there I'm a difference? To, I don't, I don't, I've never heard of a difference in the jersey and the number. I don't, know. We, I mean, we I don't debate, know. we had that discussion on Saturday. Didn't know. He may be allowed. Yeah, I mean, he may wear it this year and not be able to wear it next year. I don't know. 
my my thing maybe they get technicalities. Uh, Clowney was defensive player, Rattlers uh, offensive player. Mm-hmm. Maybe we're getting you know, I don't know. This is the world we live in. Let me ask you this: Was Shaking Dave Aiken was he on the the public address? You know it. It's another. He should have been. Now, let me ask you this, Dave. Uh, would you rather have Todd's job or Dave's job? <laughs> I think Dave Aiken's job. Okay. I think I'd do better at that hey, than the radio call. Hey, hey Ken, if we could give an award to somebody that moves from the north to the south, let's call it the North Star Award and give it to, to Dave Baker. <laughs> but I, I just want to say something. Whenever you use that word fascist, uh, here's, here's one thing with Trump. The guy has Mussolini mannerisms. I mean, if you look at this guy, this scares the hell out of these Democrats. But if you go back in time, look at on YouTube, Mussolini, he had these balcony speeches. And he could attract a crowd now. He had all these citizens in the square and all this kind of stuff. So they're scared to death, these Trump rallies. But would you rather have that or would you rather have somebody, a bunker, like uh, Joe Biden, with the newsrooms that just distribute that message to, to everybody? Do you, so do you want a guy on the balcony or the bunker? So I'll leave you at that. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. David made an interesting point. He might be onto something here. The North Star Award for the northern aggressor who comes down south, doesn't try to crap in the plate of southern living, actually accepts, embraces, <laughs> celebrates southern living. We're going to accept you. We're going to have a nomination process. Yeah, you northern aggressors who don't come down here with all that attitude you got up north. And I get it. I mean, there's millions and millions of you in these little, you know, these little condensed places. I mean, you're all bumping into one another and rubbing elbows. I mean, you're like olives in a jar, right? I mean, you're, you're, you're rubbing ass flesh against ass flesh. I mean, that's kind of what you do in some of those cities with 10 million people. So I understand you, you bring that, that demeanor and that mindset down here, but we're going, David's on to something here. So we may start, we, we'll find a sponsor. I'll see Wayne Muller got here. He's listening right now saying, yeah, let me write this thing. Yeah. Um, that's be, ass flesh. That's ass flesh. Let <laughs> me write that down. <laughs> like olives in a jar. Yeah. <laughs> but, but anyway, um, if you come down here, if you make your way down south and you don't crap in our plate and you accept, celebrate, and, and you know, kind of, I mean, just kind of go along and get along with us. Um, especially, ain't y'all, ma'am, you know, if you learn mm-hmm. to say, I mean, that, we're going to, I mean, this will be at a very exclusive club, but, but we're going to identify those Northern aggressors who've come down here and done those, um, those things. And we're going to give them a, a North star award. I like that. Mm-hmm. I, I read North star. Hey, Pretty cool. The, the most recent recipient of the North star is no one. Cause we didn't find anybody <laughs> that didn't come down here from the land of Northern aggression to craft in our Southern plate. I got to believe in Jesus. You know that you gotta, you that's us. Uh, so one of those Catholics doing so- anyway. <laughs> I'm getting way off, way off target here. Um, is is it time to? Yeah, let's do this. Let's take a break. We'll be back on um on the other side. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. I want to get Freehold's take on this. So I go somewhere Friday night. Uh, the, it's at Pauly's Island, and I go there a good bit. And I mean, we just found the place not long ago, but I go there, and it, it's kind of interesting. There's a bar in the center, and there are a bunch of bar tables. They got chicken wings and nachos and. You know, your typical bar food. I uh, got kind of a selection of craft beer and obviously mixed drinks and whatnot. It's not a dive. I mean, it's a nice place, bunch of TVs, golf and football and, and baseball everywhere. So um, so I'm sitting there and it dawns on me. There's a Gamecock and Tiger flag 
on either side of the bar, and they're probably a couple of foot, you know, two feet square, somewhere there about, big chicken, big tiger. Um, and then there's like a New England Patriot flag twice that size and a Pittsburgh Steeler flag <laughs> twice that size and a Green Bay Packer flag and a Philadelphia Eagle flag. There's a Philadelphia Phillies banner back here. There's a Washington Redskin banner over there. And, and I'm like, I'm in, I'm, I'm in Boston. I mean, I'm in <laughs> Philadelphia. I'm not in, in, you know, I'm not in Pauley's Island, South Carolina. And, and, and the lady comes up to me and says, what do you like to have? You know, and I'm like, <laughs> what do you, I, I don't speak that language. I mean, so, so it's all of a sudden I'm in a foreign country, you know, I, I'm in what a foreign like land. I, I am an hour from home at a place that I've gone all my life. I'm, I think I'm the only South Carolinian in the joint. But they did play homage, a little bit of homage to the Gamecocks and Tigers yeah. by this. It's almost like, ah, some of those Hayseeds like them two teams. I mean, just put it up there in the <laughs> yeah, corner. Just in case yeah. someone wanders in here yeah. that's a run, run, college run, fan. Run down to Walmart, get us on the coastal on it. We'll, we'll make those <laughs> Chanticleers happy. But, but I mean, it's like it's like a shrine for pro sports. And it's all Northeastern. And, um, and it just kind of dawned on me, wow, man, the coast of South Carolina is fundamentally different today. Uh, the place that my wife and I go on Sundays at times during for brunch, um, it's, um, you know, you would expect Saturday in the South. I mean, it's loaded with college football fans and TVs everywhere. There's a little of that. But if you go on Sunday, you're the only person in there without a jersey on. I mean, she and I, I mean, here comes a Steeler fan. How do I know? Because he got a damn Rocky Blair jersey on. Here's a, a Jerome Brown Eagles fan. Here's a Brett Favre jersey. You know what I mean? And it's like, wow, dude, I am in a foreign land, but I'm only an hour from home and I, in the place I grew up going out of the Grand Strand. But it, it is a different animal uh, along and the coast of South Carolina. you also talk about how the NFL is obviously the, the 800-pound gorilla, so that's going to get more attention it is. anywhere. But, I but, guess. But, but you would, I mean, I think Freehold would agree with me. I mean, the South is still college football hotbed. Right. So keep in mind the reason why they're doing this is because there are so many people from, you know, that aren't in the market where their games are. So, for example, I'm from Philadelphia. I don't have an Eagles market. So they're going to go to a bar like that because they have a satellite and they can watch their home teams. They play for that yes. direct TV season Correct. package or yes. whatever it's called. That's yeah. right. They got one TV. I would imagine. And I'll bet you Sunday, you better go early and you better find out. I mean, you'll park a mile from the place. And and historically and traditionally in South Carolina, Saturday's the big day. You know, you go to, you go to a bar or club and there's a TV with George on and a TV with the Gamecocks and the Tigers. And, well, I mean, the Gamecocks are playing now. The Tigers come on at four. You know what I mean? It's that anticipation of Saturday and game after no. That there's not much of that on the coast. It's all about professional sports, and it just don't. Even. I got my chicken wings and my French fries, and I'm like, damn. There's a little tiger sign there and a little gamecock sign there, but everything else is the NFL, NFL, and a little bit of Major League Baseball. Uh, Philadelphia must be a great sports town. I mean, it really must be. Um, the, I mean, they love the Phillies. They love the Eagles. I've always perceived it like that. Well, I mean, they love the 76ers, uh, the Flyers. Am I right? The hockey team, the Flyers. I mean, Philly, I think, is a – I mean, it's known as kind of a nasty sports town. Uh, by that, I mean they take no prisoners. I mean, they'll run a coach out of town uh, if coaches make a bad – I mean, somebody told me on the Philadelphia, like, sports call-in shows the day after a game, if a coach blows it, I mean, they just – that they are relentless and unforgiving in, uh, in making sure he knows that he blew it. Uh, if you guys want to do a fan, and the listeners too, if you guys want to have a really good time, go onto an Eagles or a Phillies Facebook page 
and just read the comments. That's all you need to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, F-bombs everywhere is all I can say. I can assure you of that. I'm convinced that there's a God in heaven, and that's just a word that I don't know. I mean, it's just uh, it's a part of their, am I right, Freeho? I mean, it's just it's, it's a yeah. word that is a part of the vernacular. I mean, it, oh, just, yeah. it is. Let's go to the phone. James in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Hello, James. Hey, good morning, guys. Uh, forgive me if you've already talked about this this morning. I'm a little late, but I'd love to hear your opinion on Biden's speech where he condemned all MAGA Republicans to be nothing but terrorists and a threat to our democracy, so they call it. And the speech before that, he said if we were going to go out against the government, we needed an F-15. He's making some pretty serious threats. I'd like to hear what you have to say about that. Uh, I'll say this. Um that is the meanest, nastiest speech I've ever heard an American president get, insulting his own people. I mean, he wasn't talking to the terrorist. He was not talking to a foreign adversary, a geopolitical foe. He's talking to half the country that didn't vote for him. I've never, and I got a couple of Democrats I'll reach out to on something like this, and both disassociated themselves with that. I mean, I said, hey, man, I get that Trump's different, but, but that guy just gave the most nasty speech that I've ever heard an American president give. But I'm telling you guys, you, you got to trust me when I tell you this. Biden is a prop in all of this. I mean, Biden is a pawn in Obama's game. Obama, Obama acolytes are running the White House. I mean, I think we've accepted that. I mean, a lot of holdovers, a lot of the Obama alumni, you know, we are the ones we've been waiting on. You know, this is the day the oceans will cease to rise. That's the people running the White House. And they've got a a man in serious a serious cognitive decline as kind of the scapegoat. You know, here, here's the guy. He put Joe out. He'll read it. He doesn't know what he's reading anyway. I mean, if Biden was in his right mind and, and coherent, Biden would say, "Hey, man, I'm not saying that. I mean, I, you know, I spent a life in, in politics, and I'm not going. I'm not. I'm not insulting half the country in that sort of way. Um, but but he does it because I don't think he understands with clarity what exactly it is. I'm not excusing it." I'm certainly not excusing it. I'm not defending it by on, any stretch. On Labor Day speech yesterday, and, and a part of it, he starts yelling and shaking. I, I mean, mean, it was well, I mean, I'm unhinged. telling you, Rev, when, and, and you, you guys have experienced some of this. When somebody gets real old and real incoherent, they get a little bit nasty. I mean, they, they do. I mean, they, you know, you've seen people like that. They get a little bit aggressive in um, some of the things they say. Uh, I've heard people say, my granddad would have never said that. My grandmother would have never said um, that. But your grandmother and grandfather aren't president of the United States. You know, they're not reading a teleprompter for all the world to pay attention to. But, and I'm not defending anything Obama said. In fact, excuse me, that Biden said, but Obama wrote. Um, but but that that speech with the, with the red backdrop and the Marines standing, you know, on guard on either side, that was bizarre. I mean, that was a little bit scary to me. It's like, whoa, damn. Uh, excuse my French, but that's that's pretty aggressive in um, the optics and the spoken word. And and once again, I reached out to two Democrats who will normally defend what Democrats do. I mean, they'll try to explain it in a a sixteen thousand word text, you know, back to me. I sent a ten word text and I get sixteen thousands back. But I mean, I'm guilty of that when someone kind of asks me for my opinion. I really want to give my opinion, but uh, but it was mean and nasty and. I've not heard many Democrats closely associate or affiliate. Now, now you know, AOC doubles down because she's a communist. I mean, anybody that is for America first and individual, rug, I mean, individual liberties and, and freedom, she's going to be opposed to. Um, but most of the rank-and-file Democrats, what I call moderate 
if there is any moderate Democrat left, I mean, the, the left has moved the 50-yard the line to about the 40-yard line in their favor. So what we call moderate today, we wouldn't have called moderate in days gone by. But most of those had very little to say about the speech. Um, was it insulting to me? N- not really. It made me a little bit angry. Because, you know, the, the way he talked about the, the, the MAGA Republican, the MAGA extremism, and, you know, the threat to democracy and all these other sorts of things. Um, but, but it didn't insult me because I've always kind of anticipated that this is where we would end up. We would end up with a president kind of taking marching orders from a movement. But because once again, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Who are the most two powerful, who are the two most powerful people in American politics today? I mean, it's not Joe Biden. I mean, the, the, the Student Debt Forgiveness Act was not contrived with Joe Biden sitting behind the desk and two of his top aides or assistant. Here, here's the way I think it goes down. You ready? I think Obama still talks to probably six or eight people in the White House regularly. I think they have regular conversations, and they go to Joe and says, Joe, here's what I think we need to do. And Joe and Jill desperately wanted to be president, vice president. You know when Biden's approvals go up? Joe and Jill president vice president well i mean yeah i said that you know, <laughs> I get it. you see where i'm at yes but um but <laughs> i caught it because <laughs> you're smart like that <laughs> been hanging around with me for a long yeah. time you're smart that way um <laughs> i'm learning i'm trying but but the the biden the biden administration is not led by joe biden i mean the biden administration is not behind i mean we really believe that joe biden sat down with two of his top aides and assistants and said look let's rework this income driven repayment plan <laughs> I mean, do you really believe that? Of course not. I mean, all that's in the Obama alumni universe. I mean, th- these are people who fundamentally are succeeding. I mean, let's be honest, guys. Let's give credit where credit is due. They're succeeding in transforming this country into something that you and I will not recognize. When we normalize the transference of debt from somebody who received a service, borrowed the money, to someone who didn't receive the service, didn't borrow the money. I mean, that's unusual. That's very uncommon. But but nobody's surprised by the Democrats doing that. We would be surprised if Joe Biden, you know, kind of thought up that, conjured up that, you know, um, that, that political belief or political mindset. But I mean, no, no, I mean, no serious person believes that Joe Biden is running the country. I think the, the, the fair debate is, okay, who is? And I've convinced myself that Susan Rice and Brian, what was the guy's name? Uh, he worked with Obama and he was kind of a high ranking, uh, I don't think into the Clintons. I mean, I think there are very few Clintons. Uh, Podesta, I think, got the job to spend all the green energy money. Uh, wow, he's fully qualified. I mean, you know, he's built electric car companies and mm-hmm. things like that. Um, John Podesta has been in Washington 50 or 60 years. He's perfectly qualified to spend, what, a half trillion dollars in green energy money to revolutionize the electric vehicle industry? Of course he's the guy you'd want. Um, doing he's just that. in the club. Let That's me say this before we take our last break. We always ramble around at the end of the show. Here's something interesting, and I'll probably get in trouble. And our general manager and vice president sitting in the studio want to be careful here, but I'm not. Um, (laughs) So we went to the moon in the 60s. We're trying to go again. We've had two attempt launches and two scrubs, right? But we've got a diverse team at NASA. I mean, I read Mm. six or seven or eight articles on how diverse this team. I mean, we got transgender engineers. We've got, you know, lesbian uh, lesbian designers. I mean, we are diverse in equity and inclusion out of the yin-yang. But, but we can't get the damn rocket in space. 
I mean, I don't know if it's the transgender or the lesbian's fault. I don't have any idea. It might be the gay dude, because you got to have one or two of those, right? I mean, merit doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how to get an engineer. Are you an engineer? Yeah. Are you good? Yeah. Are you a lesbian? No. Okay. Move on. Next. Are you an engineer? Yeah. Are you good? Yeah. Are you a lesbian? Yeah. Okay. Welcome aboard. Welcome aboard. So, so the point I'm trying to make is Elon Musk has launched private um, aircraft. How many times now? Spacecraft. Yeah, once oh, once a week or yeah, something. Hundreds I mean, of times. He's going. I mean, he's he's taking off and landing in the same things. And I mean, you know, after they got the kinks worked out, the boosters kind of land back on them. Them are they filling back up with fuel? I mean, it's it's like they've done it a million years, and they've done it two or three. I don't know that Elon has a transgender working on his team. I don't know if he has a, a lesbian working on his team. But NASA announced that they did. I mean, NASA made an announcement that diversity, in, uh, uh, diversity, equity, excuse me, diversity, equality, and inclusion was going to be a big part of this team. Well, the rocket is still sitting where it was two weeks ago. We went to the moon in the 60s, right? They're trying to go right. to, back to the moon 50 years later. But we can't get the rocket off the ground. And once again, it may be the straight white man's fault. I don't know. Is there a straight white man on this team <laughs> at NASA is the point I want to know. Because if it's the straight white man's, rest assured, <laughs> if there is a straight white man on this team, it's going to be his damn fault, that rocket. Right. There's no way it's the transgender's fault, right? You know. It can't be the lesbian's <laughs> fault. There's no way. It's that uh, it's that Asian American or African American or Hispanic American. No way in this world. But sooner or later, NASA will have a press conference and they'll say, you know, this rocket has been sitting here a long time, and we should have known not hire Billy Ray. <laughs> you, you know, Billy Ray from South Carolina, <laughs> that straight white man. <laughs> we found that he hadn't been doing his job. <laughs> you can bet that's coming down the pike. Uh, once again, Elon's taking off and landing. I mean, rockets are standing on their edge. They're filling up with fuel. They're putting them back in use. I mean, they're doing it every week, right? And they've done it, what, mm -hmm. two years? We went to the moon 50 years ago, and we can't get the rocket off the ground today. But we've got more lesbians, transgenders, <laughs> and, and gay people than you can imagine. <laughs> and, you know, kind of working around the clock to make sure that we get it done this next time. Take a break. Back in a minute. I'll tell you what we're going to do. Since we missed Monday's show, we're going to do a two Friday. We'll do two trivia questions on Friday. Fair enough. I mean, I thought about okay. doing it today, but it doesn't. That takes Tuesday to make Friday. No, we'll do. We'll make up Monday this Friday. So we'll do two giveaways on Friday's show. Uh, thanks to our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. Okay, eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. So I want to give you the final word, Ref, and I'll give Freehold. I want him to jump in here. Um, you're not a big college football fan, right? No, not really. Not a big race fan, right? No. Okay, I figured that. Um, <laughs> see, he's he's not a nominee for the Northern Star I know, Award. I know. Right, it's pretty obvious. I mean, if he wanted to be a Northern Star recipient, you know what he would have done? He'd have lied. Yeah. He'd have said, I love college football. I love NASCAR. And he would have said, y'all. Yeah, he'd have said, y'all, but he, but he chose to be the hard-butt Northern aggressor he is. So he's, I mean, he's been disqualified. Can can we can we do this? Can you and I do this collectively? Um, Freehold is now permanently disqualified from ever receiving a Northern Star Award and, or and no I, Star Award. I have to believe he's okay with that. I think he is. I yeah. think he wears it with a badge of honor. Yeah. Um, I think he's, <laughs> at least how he sees keep a radio show. I don't even on. know what, what's a Northern Star. <laughs> you got to pay attention to the show. You attention earlier the, in the, the show. show you're producing, <laughs> you need to pay closer attention to. So what do you make of the, the, the sports weekend that was? Um, okay, my takeaways are, first of all, racing at Darlington. Um, great success. I went, loved it. Big and, crowd. And, uh, and 
great crowd, and it was just beautiful to see the the stands. If you were a Chase Elliott or a Kyle Busch fan, well, not so good. Yeah. But 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 I, I was thinking I was just proud, you know, to be from this area and proud of Kerry Tharp and the and everyone over at Darlington Raceway for putting on a, a great weekend, and how much I appreciate that. Also went to the Gamecocks game. I love the lights. I love the sound. <laughs> I love the lights. I do. And the ribbon boards. I mean, the they just they kicked up the experience at Williams Bryson Notch, and I like it. Let me tell you what Rev said during the show, y'all. You ready? Rev says, "I think they improved the sound as the game went on." I think they did. I mean, it, th- this cat's listening to the quality of sound. That's what I do at the game. It is. That's exactly what you do. And it's kind of weird that I mean, I don't even know. I don't have any idea. Um, I know it got dark and red. <laughs> Thought I was at a Biden speech. <laughs> you know, right. I started looking for Marines. Right. Not quite as <laughs> I ominous. I can't find those Marines. Is this the uh, invasion we've been warned about? <laughs> Is this where the um the MAGA confrontation begins? In other words, when Biden declares war on MAGA universe, does it start at williams Bryce Stadium? Because <laughs> uh, I would imagine, you know, Trump wins that stadium by 70 30 or, or somewhere thereabout so um but you get into the x's and o's you know i'll take the w well, the, now, the win. Let, let me let me say this I, I didn't as much as i normally do but it's obvious i mean anybody i played a lot of football some don't but but the offensive line had issues the tight end yeah. and wide receivers had issues in blocking we're just not blocking well and i don't believe it's athleticism i don't believe it's talent i don't think this is a world-class offensive line this is not a world-class talented team, but but I think they're confused at what their priorities should be, what kind of scheme they're running. And once again, Marcus Satterfield came to the NFL, and I'm, I'm speculating. I don't know any of this to be true, but it looked to me like last year they implemented a very complicated scheme for the offensive line to deal with, and it didn't work. And it, you know, it looked very similar to that Saturday night. They've got better talent on, on defense. I mean, they're not Clemson. But they've got better talent on you defense. You haven't really mentioned <clears throat> Rattler and what you thought. Well, I mean, I, you know, I, he, he was on the run a lot, but he, he made some really good throws I, on I, the run. I heard or read some things, you know, high praise or, or just, just singing uh, while we made a mistake. Give, I mean, let, let this play out. You know, the best right. thing to do is kind of chill for a week or two or three. Uh, I think you'll have a real good sense of where the Gamecocks are after this Saturday in Fayetteville, Arkansas. I mean, Arkansas is a top 25 team, but they're not elite I mean, they're, they're a good team, well-coached. They're playing at home. But but I think if the Gamecocks go out there and compete well and, and maybe even lose by a field goal or so, I mean, obviously a loss is a loss is a loss. But but if you go out there and get beat 30 to nothing and you look like your offensive line was as confused then as they were last year at the opening game, eh, I'd, I'd be a little bit alarmed because Georgia comes calling the next week and Georgia's probably, along with Alabama, the two best teams in the country by far. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.